hinges creak in doorless chambers, and strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls. Whenever candlelights flicker, where the air is deathly still, that is the time when ghosts are present, practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. Your ghost host will be here presently to conduct you on your tour of this sanctuary for the disembodied. How do you do? Mr. Jim Laskowski feels it would be a little unkind to present this episode without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold the story of Patrick and Robert, two men who sought to unlock the great world of anthology horror films. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, short fiction and the commercial prospects of short fiction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So, if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Director's Club Podcast. I am Patrick Rapol, and right now I'm here with Anglophile and friend <laughs> of the show, Robert Reinecke. Robert, how are you? I am doing great. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Well, thank you. You know, you you, you brought yourself on because uh, this is a bonus episode that was uh, done because you donated $50 to Most Likely's Kickstarter. Um, and you got to chose you got to choose the premise of the bonus episode. And what premise did you choose? Well, I started out by uh, choosing that you would watch uh, Dead of Night, but we kind of expanded it to be uh, just a grand horror anthology overview. Yeah. Yeah, Dead of Night is a film from 1945 that is uh, – it is a it is a horror anthology film, but it is pretty unusual um, in far, as far as its structure. And it's it's actually got, got some a few surprises, uh, especially towards the end, as far as what its structure actually is. <laughs> yep, and uh, I mean I chose that one because I think one of the shows you said you were into uh, ventriloquist dummy horror. Yeah. <laughs> and – I don't believe you had watched it before, and that leaped right to mind as something that you should see just for that segment alone. Oh, definitely. And that's by far, that's the best segment, I'd say, of the film. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like anthology horror films a lot, if only because there isn't a real. They're really the only market for short horror films. Mm hmm. They're really the only market for short films as a whole. Yeah, I mean, there's other kinds of anthology films. In fact, I just had Tales of Hoffman on at work the other day. So, mm -hmm. you know, other uh, other people have made different sorts of anthology films. There's, you know, the sketch comedy film. There is, uh, you know, uh, Pablo Pasolini uh, mm -hmm. did did uh, several anthology films, including ones based on the Arabian Nights and Canterbury Tales. Yeah, um, you got like, New York Stories, uh, Paris, Jatem, and uh, Tokyo. Yes, yes, all of the and the holiday ones, uh, the Love Actuallys, and the. Mm -hmm. um, but until Love Actually and until Gary Marshall sort of came around with all of those bad ripoffs of Love Actually, the only real like just marketable commercial, uh, easy, uh, easy sort of money m movie that was a. Uh, that consisted of short films was the anthology horror film. Yeah. 
And I, I think that goes back just because there's a wealth of short horror stories. Um, I mean, we, you can see that even when they are adapting some of them, like Corman's Poe stories sometimes seem stretched beyond what they're capable of supporting. Yeah, yeah. Or they they were just um, based... Often Corman would just take a good title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, uh, like the haunted not this is not an anthology horror film but the haunted palace not based on Edgar Allan Poe. No, it's a Lovecraft adaptation. Right, but he claims it's Poe because of the of that one song that's in uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, that I mean and Poe's stories are strong. Mask of the Red Death is like 5 pages. Mm-hmm. I mean they they really had to invent to to get a a, a full-length feature out of that. Yeah, and horror, horror. I mean, uh, short fiction in general. Again, the the real market for it has always been genre kind of fiction, short detective stories, mm-hmm. um, western stuff like that. And horror, that's uh, you know, since Poe, there has just been a, a steady stream of short horror fiction that has come in and out of the public consciousness. You know. Yeah, I mean, Weird Tales magazine is probably the the biggest uh, market for it for a long time. Uh, that's where Lovecraft sold most of his works. Um, I mean, I, mean, I would say before that, even we had a, a big oral tradition of uh, fairy tales and campfire tales and folklore, and I think that's part of it too. Sure, sure. And I mean, that that actually ends up being um, the premise of a lot of anthology horror films is because these the thing that connects most of these films is there's some sort of framing story. There has to be some sort of justification for just showing a bunch of shorts to the audience. And usually that takes the form of people are telling stories to each other. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I think that came out of radio as well. Um, um, I mean, it let, it, the the oral story lends itself well to radio, which kind of lends itself to uh, uh, back to the anthology movies and comic books. Oh, yeah. I mean, radio, The I think the thing radio got is the pacing. Because when you look at the sort of 20, 22-minute uh, short horror story uh, that is in an older anthology film, it is usually paced the exact same as an episode of Lights Out or Suspense would be. Um, mm-hmm. ju- they they have just the same amount of character depth, just the same amount uh, uh, of world building, and uh, the always the ironic twist at the end. Yeah, always. Um, I mean, that, certainly that comes from the the comic books as well, because I, I think EC Comics is the master of that, of having the uh, ironic punishment uh, being meted out, finally. Um, I mean, O. Henry is certainly that. And then there's certainly uh, no shortage of uh, short horror fiction you can find from Poe and Lovecraft and Block and Matheson. Stephen Ambrose, King. yeah, Ambrose Bierce. Uh, M.R. Yeah. James. Mm-hmm. M.R. M. R. James has uh, – I don't know if there's any M.R. James anthologies, but in England they have regular TV adaptations of his short stories. Yeah, and, and usually air around Christmas. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's – a, I actually actually did that this Christmas. We told each other ghost stories <laughs> and lit, lit a candle and I, I read Whistle and I'll Come to You, O Lad. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, and it's actually – that actually ties back into anthology horror because there is a real sense of nostalgia. That was sort of the recurring thing I found in a lot of these anthology horror. Um, the good mm-hmm. and the bad, they usually came from things that you could tell 
the creators read like as children. You can tell that Corman was a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan as a child when you see his Edgar Allan Poe movies, and you can tell that like Stephen King and George Romero were huge EC Comics fans when you watch Creepshow. There's a, there's definitely a real nostalgia that almost all of these movies are rooted in. Mm-hmm. And even when they get the the horror writers, I mean, they get Robert Block to, to uh, went from Psycho to going full on into these horror anthologies and uh, reworking some of his older works. Uh, Richard Matheson is a recurring name you see uh, who did short stories and uh, adaptations. So I, I think there's there's certainly some directorial or authorial voice that works their way into the anthology. <laughs> Now, the earliest anthology horror film that I've seen, and I don't know if you got a chance to see it, is this film from Germany from 1924 called Waxworks. Uh, I did not get a chance to see that. Now, it's a it's a German expressionist film, and it's there's this writer um, who finds who sees an ad for uh, a writing job for a wax museum, and basically he goes and the owner of the wax museum explains to him that the job is he has to tell these stories about these crazy wax figures that are all throughout the museum. Um, and it is basically just a framing story to allow for these historical tales. One is about this evil uh, sultan uh, in this very Arabian kind of tale. That's the best one just because of the, <laughs> just because the, the combination of German expressionism and like um, Arabian nights. Yeah. Arabian nights is a really, really beautiful uh, uh, sort of aesthetic. The rest of the the rest of the film, I mean, none of the films are particularly scary. I will say that in general, I have that problem with silent films. Even something like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I am generally put off by the pace of them. Uh, so yeah, so well, it's, it's hard to find much pre seventy that's really scary anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly there's here and there you can find things that are creepy. Now, Dead of Night, there's a lot, especially at the end, that is quite creepy. Um. So, but anyway, I will say Waxworks is interesting to see. Um, it, it's it's nice as a little bit of history, and it actually is closer to what most uh, anthology horror films would become than Dead of Night. Even though Dead of Night came out much later and closer to yeah. like the uh, Asylum and Black Sabbath and movies like that, uh, Waxworks is actually closer to that emphasis on framing story. Um but only enough emphasis to establish that it's a framing story. Whereas mm -hmm. the first film we're going to be talking about in depth, Dead of Night, Dead of Night actually takes sort of its time to build the characters and the relationship to each other. And it, and it spends a lot more time in the quote unquote real world. Yep. <laughs> than than you would expect a, a, a anthology horror film to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly has a, an interesting frame, and uh, um, it, it certainly does things different. I mean, I don't know if the framing story gets as much emphasis as any of the other uh, anthology horror films that we're going to discuss, but it's certainly something that sets Dead of Night apart. Um, now, Dead of Night, I actually just watched this, but I can't remember the order of the stories how do you want to tackle this do you want to just sort of go story by story because a lot of these movies they're you know the anthology the genre is the definition of hit and miss yep uh so <laughs> yeah. so often you will have people raving about a film and an anthology horror film and you see it 
And for a good 40 minutes of that film, you'll be thinking, I don't know what these people see. And then the third, and then the third story, and then the third story in Trilogy of Terror happens, and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the example I was thinking of. You go, if, if you could just remove that one, you'd have something truly special, but you have to sit through the other two. And yeah. Almost always the best one is the last one. Yeah, well, that's certainly the ending of Dead of Night is the greatest. What is the first story in Dead of Night? It is oh, well, it's besides the framing where the where the architect arrives at the farmhouse and says that he has a recurring dream and then tries to convince everybody that there's danger involved. Uh, the first one is the bus conductor. That's uh, right. It's that is almost like that is maybe the most slight story <laughs> I've ever seen in an anthology <laughs> horror film. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, 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 a story of a premonition of warning. Um, I guess it's a fairly famous short story by uh, E.F. Benson, but it's very slight. It, the uh, protagonist really has no agency, except for he makes one decision not to get on the bus. And other than that, it, that's pretty much it. Yeah, there was, there's a – it's funny because I watched the, uh, I watched the um, Amicus uh, and – the Amicus films in Dead of Night last as I was prepping for this episode. And there is a certain stuffiness <laughs> to <laughs> to British horror that I often am curious as to how much of it is supposed to be humorous and how much of it is supposed to be scary. Now, the next – because the next story um, – no, no, no. The next story is actually quite good because the next story is this girl – who tells the story of playing a sort of modified game of hide and seek called sardines. And as she's hiding in this big old house, she encounters what turns out to be a little boy's ghost. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, it's a little spooky, just like, just as a concept and it, and it works. I think Mm -hmm. the performances are good. Yeah. Yeah. I think the performances are good. I think the costume and the set is is very well done too. Yeah. Really immersive. Yeah. I mean, it feels big. It does, it does, and it and it's the sort of thing that would be like maybe the it would maybe be the first fifteen minutes of a Val Luton movie, um, and you never do get a big payoff. There is no real scare there. There is just that there is just that well, yeah. There's just that there's just that like cliche sort of horror movie twist of but that but that boy hasn't been alive for ten years, you know <laughs> that sort of thing. But uh, I do like just the premise of it and it's nice and a little spooky but mm-hmm. so the stuffiest one the one that is that was maybe the most interminable for me uh <laughs> well we'll have a little bit of a disagreement on that but is, i is understand the, what your point is is the next one is the mirror one in which uh, a man gets a mirror that has some sort of curse or some sort of haunting or something is happening with it in which when he looks into it he sees himself in a different room and it does elev it does <laughs> it does uh escalate in the last two minutes of the story but yeah. until then it really is just oh my god <laughs> i see myself in a different room it's not a creepy room really it's not like a castle it's not a torture dungeon it's not yeah. like in this room i'm seeing evidence of some terrible tale <laughs> like it is just a different uh slightly slightly more upscale room yeah well i would say it has touches of the gothic there oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a little bit but not not yeah. to the extent that you get or that i got not any like, sense of say dracula or something like right that, but... and i don't i got no sense of dread from that room mm-hmm. but i mean i i think 
I I don't know if I get, get a real sense of dread, although the, the last two minutes I think are very effective. I I would agree there. Um, but I I would say that the the past intruding on the present and still having a grip on the present I think it, it works thematically uh, mm-hmm. for me and and it is kind of the British origin of the Gothic film which got full flower with Hammer about a decade and a half later but uh, uh, I think that's part of the where you start to see the Gothic influence creep into British horror just literally in the frame of that mirror yeah <laughs> it's uh, I mean it's. I mean, I love the movie Oculus, and I could definitely see, like, oh, yeah, maybe, I can't remember the the guy's name, but the writer-director of Oculus, maybe he's seen Dead of Night, and he just sort of, when he did his original short film of Oculus, because uh, it is, because it's the same sort of premise where the mirror is messing with the guy's head um, yep, and making him jealous and commit a ha- horrible crime, but again, that only, that only happens in the last, like, two or three minutes. I, I do like the they tell the history of the mirror, but I, th- I think uh, Hitchcock handled that better in Vertigo, where they basically had the bookstore scene. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I do like the, the tale they tell, but I, I, I think it, it could have been told a little better. But I, uh-huh. I think it's a I think that part when they start revealing the history and then uh, the man starts to go crazy at the end. I think that part works, but I, I can understand it being a little stuffy uh, at the beginning with these rich people having their petty rich for little problems is yeah. uh, uh, not not the most relatable. But also, and also, yeah, it, there is no real overt threat until the t- last two minutes. Um, mm. And it, yeah, it ends up not being terribly frightening to me. Though at this point, I do want to reference back to the framing story, which is this man arrives into this room full of people. Um, he's an architect. He's going to be doing renovations on the house or something like that. And he recognizes every one of them because he has a recurring dream where exactly what is happening to him at that moment happens, mm-hmm. where he arrives and everyone knows – and he knows that something terrible happens at the end of the dream. Yeah. And basically the rest of the film, the framing device is people trying to say, I believe you or trying to say it's going to be all right and sort of dissuade him that you know something terrible is going to happen. And they, in doing that, are relating stories of strange, weird uh, sort of clairvoyance and stuff like that moments Mm. that have happened to them and it is funny that uh (laughs) every single person in that room almost just has this crazy story (laughs) (laughs) they just and they've never mentioned that to each other (laughs) like (laughs) yeah like if, if it turned out that uh if you know if you got 10 of your closest friends together and you all had insane supernatural stories to tell um Yep, and that never came up. It would be very strange. Though, the next story after the mirror story is maybe the silliest one. <laughs> and oh, definitely the silliest. That's one. that's where the stuffiness you can actually absolutely tell uh, is co- supposed to be comedic. And this is a fictional story that someone tells just so they're not left out, <laughs> just because they realize that they're literally the only person in their circle of friends who hasn't met a ghost. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. So this guy tells a story about two golfing buddies, and it, oh my god, this story is so strange. They're two golfing buddies, and they both love the same woman. And the woman is just, you know, I don't know. You guys figure it out. I'm, well, I'm clearly one of yours, but I couldn't choose. So they go, oh, I know. We'll have a golf game. <laughs> so one one of the friends beats the other, but he cheated. Uh, yep. The other kills themselves. 
Yep, by just walking into a pond and committing suicide. <laughs> just, like, right there on the spot, he loses the game and just walks into a pond and ends his life. And then he hunts the other guy so that he has a bad golfing game. <laughs> Like the like the real the real wickedness in this in this story is that his handicap goes up. It's it's this it's the sort of thing that is I I don't know it'd be like in a Reader's Digest as like golf humor or something like that. Yeah, it would be. Um, did you notice that the two two main actors in that also played the uh, fans of cricket from uh, The Lady Vanishes? Oh no, I didn't know. Notice that. Yeah, those are the two from uh, The Lady Vanishes and uh, uh, Night Train to Munich. Okay, so they're like a recurring little comedy team. Yep. That's funny. And then at the end, the greatest thing at the end is then everyone just goes, yeah, that's nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a wonderful bit of time wasting. Yep. But I think it's kind of fun, and I think it lightens the mood. And uh, that's actually based on a story by H.G. Wells. That's the issue because uh, so they at the beginning in the opening credits they say that all who all the writers are and one of them was H G Wells and I was like trying to figure out really H G Wells which one of these H G Wells that's the H G Wells story <laughs> that's the H G Wells story it doesn't seem like him but it, it is him he was just writing for some light humor magazine in addition to his science fiction <laughs> apparently yeah I mean, maybe he was a golf fan I guess so. <laughs> That's actually that's actually the H.G. Wells story that's closest to his heart. Like, <laughs> there's some weird alternate universe where Steven Spielberg does a hundred fifty million dollar version of the of the two golfers. They're played by Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise. I would watch that. I, I would too. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to the final story, which is the story that this is the one that actually made you want to have me watch this in the first place, and it is. Your classic evil, creepy ventriloquist dummy story. Yep, with uh, Michael Redgrave as the um, supposed main uh, uh, or uh, so, supposed ventriloquist. Right. So and he and, is really terrific, I think, in this one. He. It's really so. I mean, the story is what all evil ventriloquist dummy stories are, which is ventriloquist. Is amazing ventriloquist. No one can figure out how he does it. Turns out the way he does it is that the dummy is alive. Um, so this could have been actually been quite tedious, but you are correct in that that man's main the what's the actor's name again? Michael Redgrave. Michael Redgrave's performance. Yeah. Vanessa uh, and Lynn's father. Oh, that's funny. I just saw uh, Mr. Arkadin last yesterday. Okay. Uh, uh, in the movie theater, Michael Redgrave's in that as well, and he's also kind of a similarly creepy, sad person character. Uh, Michael Redgrave, he just looks like he has been through hell. There is this, you know, you don't really get to find out how the two met. You don't get to find out what their history is. But his face says it all because even when the show is going well, he just has this flop sweat and this desperation to him. And he's just in despair because he, like, because he just, his life is absolutely controlled by this little wooden puppet an abusive wooden puppet. Yeah, an abusive wooden puppet, and he just knows at any time he can absolutely lose control. Um, <laughs> and it's so another ventriloquist. You know, this also very typical beats. Another ventriloquist, is like how you do it, and the dummy starts to try to make a deal with that ventriloquist, and then Michael Redgrave kills him or shoots him at least. Shoots him, yeah. Uh, he ends up living, but. 
So there's a lot of creepy moments oh, in it. And, and at the end, uh, he seems to be he, – he destroys the dummy but yet seems to be possessed by the Yes, spirit of the, the, dummy. the twist at the end is actually that it isn't supernatural. Like, like <laughs> I don't know if at, in 1945 it was cliche enough that the audience would assume it was supernatural. But I just – I was like, oh, yeah, of course the twist at the end is that the dummy is still alive somehow or something without him. But the twist at the end is he actually did have a split personality. Um, and this is the rare ventriloquist dummy whore in which – uh, the this creepiest moment is not from looking at the ventriloquist dummy, but from the ventriloquist himself. That that part at the end where Michael Redgrave's mouth isn't moving and he's talking in the dummy's voice and he's mm-hmm. like twitching. It is, oh my god, it's 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 a very unsettling. Yeah, I, I I think it's it's easily the best story of the of the uh, of the film, at least the, unless we take into account the how the framing advice ends. But I think it's pure nightmare fuel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ven- dummies are always creepy. I wouldn't call Hugo, the dummy in the story, a particularly creepy dummy, but he is definitely creepy in the way that ventriloquist dummies are creepy. Yeah, they all fall into the uncanny valley. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, but yeah, the that especially that final shot at the end is ugh, really <laughs> gets under my skin. I really don't like it at all. Um. <laughs> Which is pretty good for a film from 1945. It is. It is. Um, and then and then it gets amazing <laughs> for a film <laughs> from 1945. Um, basically, the, 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 the architect who's, who keeps having these recurring dream and the doctor who has been very dismissive of all of the supernatural tales until then, um, he – those two – basically clear the room out so that they can work on whatever's happening with him one-on-one. Um, and then the doctor's glasses break somehow. Right. Which is one of the things that he, one of the premonitions he has in his dreams is that right. the doctor's glasses break. And then the lights go out. Right. And then the lights go out and then he knows that, Oh, his dream must come true. And, he, the architect, something changes in him, and he becomes uh, like a murderer. <laughs> yeah, he snaps. <laughs> he snaps. Yeah, you're right. He snaps, and he walks behind the doctor, strangles him, and uh-huh. then he enters what could only be described as a phantasmagoria <laughs> um, nightmare dreamscape that is made up of all of the other previous stories. Yeah, I don't know if the golfing story made it in there. <laughs> Yeah, I I think yeah, probably there's no golfing. Um but the but the Miles Mallison who's the bus conductor becomes a jailer saying there's room for one more. He runs through the Christmas party. Uh I think he sees himself in the mirror in the the gothic he, he setting. Es- he escapes into the mirror. Right. He climbs through the mirror to escape and then there during the when he runs through the Christmas party with all the children, there's a great shot where it's like really intense lighting and shadows cast on the wall and all the children just jump into frame and go, let's go find him. And it's really creepy. Yeah. I, I, I get, he ends up in a, what the jail cell with the ventriloquist dummy, Hugo. Right. And then Hugo comes alive. <laughs> oh yeah. That's yeah. So that is actually the creepiest ventriloquist dummy part of the whole thing is not in the actual story, but in the framing story when the nightmare version of the dummy is becomes like you know like a child with a dummy mask on 
slowly like crawling towards him. <laughs> yeah, that works great. I think I think I got some uh, goose pimples at that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really effective. Um, and then he wakes up, and this was also explained at the beginning of the story, uh, beginning of the film. But light, but it's actually like a really interesting, smart choice. That is, he wakes up, and um, he doesn't remember the dream after after nope. a couple seconds. The way you don't, the way dreams are the most intense thing ever, and then you wake up. And then you just sort of forget the details. And, you know, by 30 seconds after he wakes up, he's forgotten all about it. He's gotten a phone call saying, asking him to come out to see this old farmhouse to renovate it. <laughs> yep, and then the, the film basically repeats. Well, yeah, no, and then he flips a coin determining whether or not he'll go. And then, it, and then of course, it lands that it says he will go. And then the film repeats. It just ends with the way the film begins, with him driving up to the farmhouse. So there's a there's like a fan edit of Dead of Night you could do that will just lasts forever. <laughs> yeah, it repeats and repeats and repeats. And, and oh god, but that little flip of the coin was actually my favorite part because it implies like that it's horrible fate, you know? Yeah. Um, it implies that the deck is so stacked against him that even when he flips the coin, it's oh you just know it's always going to land heads. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a classic ending. It's really good, and I definitely didn't see it coming. And even when I and even when they go, oh, the, this person in a farmhouse wants to see if you can renovate, and I assumed what that it would be the same farmhouse. I didn't mm-hmm. foresee them actually, like even formally, the way they do it is really impressive because they actually just use the same footage with the end credits rolling over it. Yeah. So instead <laughs> of hearing the conversation outside, you just have end credits rolling over it. Uh, and it's it's actually quite chilling. Like, it, this is a really, for all of the, you know, it's an anthology horror, so obviously hit and miss. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual structure of it is really unnerving. Yeah. I mean, it it, it does, it re, uh, repeats itself. I, I think you can see that uh, Rod Serling was a, a fan of this. I think you can see lots oh, sure. of these things running through the Twilight Zone. Yeah, I mean, Twilight Zone is... A lot of these older stories actually felt like truncated Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah, and, and certainly uh, Serling was fan of the ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, for... yeah, absolutely. I don't know of another film of this era, another horror film that has that level of unam- like just bad ending, like just <laughs> unhappiness, just despair, that kind of. No, no monster was killed. No problem was solved. This mm-hmm. go, the the horror goes on forever and ever. It's the sort of thing that is by the seventies would become commonplace as you know. Yep. Things got more and more amoral and just uh and and more and more cynical and and bleak. But I don't think I've ever seen a film of this era that has that. No, I don't think from before it either. I mean, I, I think it's the first really bleak, hopeless ending. A horror film that I can re- remember. So I mean, I I just saw it an hour ago, so I'm I'm quite happy I saw it um, <laughs> right before. Yeah, yeah, I just saw it right before, and and then probably when I wake up tomorrow, I'll go, <laughs> oh shit, I have to watch Dead of Night. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording the podcast. I gotta watch Dead of Night before the podcast, mm-hmm. and well, and that that will be my own little private horror. Yeah. Did you ever uh, read uh, Sandman by Neil Gaiman? Um, 
I've I read like the first two or three trades. Okay. I checked them out from the library. Okay, I, I think of the end of the first issue, which has the uh, um, antagonist basically being sentenced to wake up to nightmare. Wakes up to another nightmare. Wakes up to another nightmare. It's a it's kind of an escalating thing, which I think is certainly um, it's different from Dead of Night. But I think it's this the same device. I can't imagine that Neil Gaiman isn't a fan of Dead of Night. Oh sure, sure. And then also the I, I isn't the it's been a long time since I read Sandman, but even the initial premise of traveler comes to a place where people are gathered around in a single room telling stories yeah that that happens i think in the world's end trade paperback or collection uh-huh so that's a little later in the series but that, that's oh, okay. certainly that's certainly something game and use um but it's a classic structure but game and uses that well yeah so i, mean, I think they think this has got to be one of the most influential films of the 1940s i yeah. mean you can Look at all the anthologies that came after it. I mean, I sent you you sent me a link of how many anthology films there are, and I would say this has certainly set the template to a great extent. Yeah, yeah. Even though, even though with that kind of recursive structure, um, that is more than just like the most simple excuse we can come up with for a framing story. Uh, like that, it that that would be sort of the the host. Uh, sort of angle of uh, of like Black Sabbath, mm-hmm. um, or the uh, the Asylum Frame. The Asi- yeah. well, Asylum Frame is actually closer to this, where the final story ends up tying everything. Yeah. Into the the final story is the the end of the framing story. Right. But I, I, I certainly Asylum seems to be uh, <clears throat> influenced by it, and yeah, obviously Twilight Zone seems to be influenced by it in style. <laughs> And now we'd like to take a little break for a word from some of our sponsors. It's the talk of Southeast Missouri. What's that? Why, the big money-saving sale now in progress at the Batten Furniture Company in Steele, Missouri. A new dimension in shock, like spending a night in the grave. Three of the most macabre experiences ever put on film. Witness the bone-crushing terror in... The Corpse Grinders! Plus, sinister and terrifying, The Undertaker and his pals. Fiendish and petrifying, The Embalmer. Due to the highly intense and sinister nature of this program, the producers insist that every person in attendance personally sign a certificate of assurance before being admitted into the theater, certifying each patron of sound mind and body, and that in the event of a coronary insanity or death suffered due to the program, the producers or theater cannot be held liable in any way. Certificates will be handed out for your signing prior to ticket purchase at the box office by special uniformed attendants. A nurse is in attendance at the theater, providing free blood pressure tests to anyone requesting such. The Corpse Grinders! Undertaker and his pals, and the embalmer, the shock of your life. Now back to our program as Patrick and Robert move from the familiar Western world to one of Japan's great horror masterworks. Quidon, I was unprepared for. I, I was too. I hadn't seen it. I knew it by reputation, but I, I was surprised. Me, I think the first surprise for me was that it was in color and it's in gorgeous color. Oh my god! It's it's yeah, it's really really good looking movie. 
Uh, Quidon is by far the longest movie on this list mm-hmm. of movies we're discussing. slowly paced. It is the slowest movie. It is four stories, and it is uh, over three hours long. Yeah, I, I, I watched the, the, the slightly truncated version. But oh, I know okay. The, uh, Criterion has the three-hour version coming out in October on Blu-ray. Oh, maybe I watched the slightly truncated version then. I just looked up the time. Because I watched the first Criterion release. Yeah, it's like two hours and 40 minutes. But it's close to three hours. Oh, okay. Sure, yeah. But it is... It is... It's the first uh, anthology horror film that really feels like... It is... All the stories are thematically linked. Mm-hmm. All this... All, they're aesthetically linked. They seem to be just about the same thing. Uh, and they go about the, the, that same thing in very similar ways, and and that and that sort of repetition ends up getting hypnotic, which is the only reason why you can sit through an anthology horror <laughs> film that's two hours and forty minutes long. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very precise in its movements and elegant. I I would compare it to say like a Japanese uh, tea ceremony where every move is planned precisely <laughs> and is elegant and has a purpose to it, but it is, it is slow and it takes a while. Yeah. So, but it, it all, I, I think it all works marvelously. It is just soaked and it's the most, it's probably the most emotional anthology horror yeah. film ever made because every story is soaked with regret. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the recurring theme seems to just be, uh, regret and shame about the past and, uh, not honoring the past and fear of the future that comes out of anxieties from the past and that sort of that movement of time, which again maybe that is why the movie works uh, being as long as it is because it really makes you feel it. Yeah, yeah, make you feel the regret. I I know uh, the director uh, Kobayashi came out of uh, doing domestic dramas and melodramas, and I think he invests uh, the horror film with those sorts of uh, issues as well of uh, regret and um, the basic domestic drama, uh, melodrama. I left my wife and I shouldn't have. Yes. That could be a melodrama, but it is uh, uh, treated as a horror story here. Uh, the woman in the snow is, I have a secret from prior to marriage and should I tell my wife about it or not? Uh, and when I do, something bad happens. That uh, story, by the way, ripped off for... Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Okay. And Kurosawa did a, a version of The Lady in the Snow in his uh, Dreams uh, oh, really? film. That's that's an anthology, too. So there's the, the Blizzard segment features the uh, uh, similar imagery in it. Yeah, so the Tales from the Dark Side, which we're not going to be talking about, I did watch, uh, I did watch uh, and I'd never seen before. And the final story in that is basically the exact same plot <laughs> um, as the... The woman in the snow, except that it's like a gargoyle. Ah, okay. <laughs> but it's, it's that sounds like tales from the dark side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, obviously, it means so much more in quite on uh, yeah. just having quite on having the tone it does. Yeah, I mean Hoichi, the the earless one. He had the blind uh, singer who's finally appreciated for his gifts, maybe too appreciated. Um, but he he finds acceptance in probably where he shouldn't. Well, and the, the song, the songs he sings is telling is about honoring the dead, right? 
and the dead, uh, the pull of the dead on him is probably not to his benefit. Right. I don't, I don't the in a cup of tea is the the last one. I don't know if it has quite the regrets. No. The other one in a cup of tea is kind of silly. Yeah, <laughs> but it, I, I think it was the one my wife enjoyed the most, maybe because it is kind of short and silly. Yeah, yeah. In, it, in a cup of tea is the ghost golfer of Quaidon. <laughs> but I, I think that all of them are quite good, and they're all visually yeah. striking, and I, I think they're all marvelous. This might be the best anthology that I watched. Um, it's, it's certainly the, the, the most different from them. So it, it stands out yeah. head and shoulders. Um, I think the black hair, I, I really enjoyed. I don't know. If, I don't, we've all seen the J horror with the black haired, uh, spirit. So I, I think that one, uh, feels something both, uh, uh, of its time and of the past and yet, uh, contemporary. Sure. Sure. I mean, I don't know enough about the history of, uh, Asian horror to say, anything is this is where this comes from but mm-hmm. i it definitely felt the black hair is exactly what it sounds like except that the movie came out in 1964 as opposed to 2003 yeah but it, it ends similarly and I, yeah. I really like how it's carried out when the man finally discovers that his wife had that he comes back to actually is a spirit and the way the lighting changes and the makeup changes, I think is really quite effective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the first story, the black hair is about a, a man who feels limited by his current standing. So he goes and marries a wealthy, uh, woman of title. Mm-hmm. Divorces is, uh, the woman who loves him, um, but who's poor uh-huh. uh, and abandons her. <laughs> Yeah, and again, just because of the pace of the film, it dedicates so much time to her agony at him leaving her and her you know, unceasing devotion even after that uh, to standing by and like, you know, just working on her loom, uh just endless shots of her working on her loom. It's it's well it's really hard to describe this movie in a way that does it justice, honestly. <laughs> No, I, I don't think any of the plots are complicated. It, no, it's it's all in the mood and the tone and the longing for uh, to reconnect and regrets about making the mistake, um, marrying for wealth and title and position instead of love and the regret over that, uh, and trying to redo it, but ultimately not being able to fix it. When I think about my very favorite uh, moments in J horror, I actually the two that come to mind are. Pulse, which has a very similar sort of tone, which it pulses a, a Japanese film from mm-hmm. the like 2004, 2005, something like that. And it marries the ghosts intruding on the world, uh, you know, sort of premise of a lot of J-horror with an absolutely uh, pervasive feeling of just despair. Uh, everything about that movie is just has just so much despair and sadness to it. Um, and then also there's the box, which is Takeshi Miike's segment in another anthology horror <laughs> film that we're not going to cover on this, which is three three extremes. Uh, one I'm actually quite a fan of, and that one again is about someone remembering the past and something horrible that happened and feeling haunted by that me- those memories. Uh, and both of those just feel like they spring from this. Yeah, I I, I think it's it's still quite effective. Yeah. I don't know if it's scary in a modern sense, but it's certainly no. effective. No, it's effective. If you allow yourself 
to just sort if you just surrender to this movie if you're checking your watch and you're trying to like figure out in your head like all right 20 minutes have passed so that means this has to end soon like you're like you're trying to like if you're trying like that is honestly a thing i actually end up doing while watching many anthology horror films because sometimes you because when i watch a feature film if i just see where everything is going and i know that i don't care i just turn it off i'm just like well yeah i didn't i don't like that movie i turn it off but for an anthology horror film uh, obviously you don't have to sit through that long, but you can be five minutes into a segment and just know that you don't care and that it's not interesting to you. Um, and you'll just still have to sit through the next 10 minutes. <laughs> just like, yep, saw that coming. Not good. Saw that coming. Yep. This is boring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and quite on, if you try, if you do that, you're just going to go insane. You'll never make it through it. But if you really yeah, surrender to its mood and to its slow rhythm and to its patience um and to its beauty and to the images uh Mm -hmm. it's a transcendent experience it's really incredible yeah i i I think it's it's really beautiful too i I don't think we can emphasize it enough it it really is maybe the second best looking color horror film of all time i will say I think the first best looking cor- color horror film of all time is the next one we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, it, it might be. I mean, it, it's 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 really take your pick. I mean, yeah, yeah. And they they both do some similar things with colored lighting in that too. Mm-hmm. So they they both embrace color to a, a great extent. And when did now the next film we're going to be? I honestly, I just feel like. Uh, I I feel like I don't have anything to say about Quidon, uh, just because it's so overwhelmingly a visual experience as opposed to a uh, narrative or thematic one. Yeah, I I would agree. Although I I will say I think the acting across the board is all top notch. Oh yeah, that's very it's very good. I mean, and you got Takashi Shimura, and um, I mean everybody in it is excellent. Um. I mean, they, these are some of the best actors of Japanese cinema of the period, and they they are not condescending to the material. They are elevating material. Yeah, absolutely. The uh... yeah, I mean, there's there's not a whole lot to. I agree, there's not a whole lot to uh, analyze as far as plot, which probably works against it as a podcast. But as far as mood and beauty and acting and every every shot is a, a picture. You could post any random frame shot and it'll look great yeah it's and it's it, it, it is creepy it is not scary it's not frightening there's no great no. shock moments but it yeah. but yeah. the but in giving so much emotional power to supernatural uh to supernatural events you it, it does get under your skin mm-hmm. if only because you believe it it it, it so believes in its ghosts more yeah. than most supernatural horror films. Yeah. And I would say that because it's Japanese, it's, it's something that we're, we're not really accustomed to. Um, so it's something exotic and different. And uh, you may see where these things are going, but you, you they have different rhythms and different ways that these stories play out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I think I would recommend this to just about everybody. <laughs> Now, the next film came out the year before, 1963, and it is Mario Bava's first color horror film, Black Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, and this is, this is pretty great. I mean, this is, this is easily one of the very best. 
Yeah, I would put this Creepshow and Quaidon and say those are that's the holy trinity of anthology horror. Yeah, or maybe Dead of Night Two would compete for that, uh, but that, those would be the Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I, I, the only, yeah, Dead of Night is really fascinating and very surprising in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel transcendent to me in the way that Black Sabbath does at, at with its last two stories. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the telephone is the only thing that holds uh, uh, Black Sabbath back from being a masterpiece, but it is it's a pretty effective story as as, as it is. Um, it's uh, so yeah. The other thing you have to say about Black Sabbath is for for my money, they're you can't watch the American version. Like, they don't actually change all that much. They change the order of the stories, and they ch- they change some of the dialogue in the telephone to remove a lesbian subplot. Right. But the order of the stories for me is what makes Black Sabbath work so well, um, which is to say... the f- and I don't know. Which version did you watch? I watched the Italian version. Okay, so did I. So... The Italian version has the framing device of Boris Karloff being very cheeky, but <laughs> measured but cheeky. Yeah. Um, With a very colorful background behind him. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, introducing the film and saying that vampires might be sitting next to you in the theater. <laughs> and then you don't see – he doesn't come in between each story. You only see him again at the end of the film. I think he comes in between each story in the American version. Um, the, the American – framing device is different as well. But so the first but we're going to be talking about the Italian version. The Italian version the first story is the telephone which is basically a uh when a stranger calls uh sort of a scenario pre when a stranger calls but still that kind of threatening phone calls and they're saying things that imply that they can see you but you don't know where they are. It's it is it doesn't really add all that much <laughs> to that to that format, um, but it is. Although it has to be one of the earliest ones. Sure, sure, and it's it's one of the and it's an it's an effective, relatively effective one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the other thing that's important for me is the progression of uh, mm-hmm. of realism, or I yeah. should say, lack of realism. Because yeah, it, this is certainly the most grounded of the yeah three films. So yeah, the first the first story, of the telephone is by far the most grounded there's nothing supernatural going on it's modern it takes place in a single apartment room it's about a jealous lover um the, there is a murder with the knife <laughs> you know it is it is and a strangulation and a strangulation that's right there's also a strangulation so it is just grounded horror film yeah there's like three people in it and no change of location and just threatening calls, turn, screws turn, people come into the apartment, and then another person comes in the apartment. Um, now, the second story, the Wordalac, uh, is uh, uh, what what time period would you call it? Eighteenth um, or nineteenth century, I would call it some some place in. It seems like it's Eastern European, right? Uh, I believe they have guns, so let's let's, let's say it's uh, it's, it's pre twentieth century, so maybe nineteenth century. Sure. And this is where the lighting gets more colorful, more expressionistic. But even mm-hmm. the the funny thing about the even within the Wordalac, it starts off not operatic. It starts off with just an outdoor shot of a man on a horse. Right. Um, it's only things get more sort of operatic and stage bound as the as the story goes on. 
Um, and as it ratchets up its tension and creepiness. Yeah, and uh, I mean, a, a guy finds a body with a, a dagger in it, and he goes a headless body with a dagger in it. And he t- he takes the uh, dagger to the nearest what inn, farmhouse or whatever. Yeah, it's a farmhouse. Um, and discovers that the father was out uh, fighting against uh, what the, a robber slash possible vampire. Yes, called, the, called Wordalax in Wordalax. this, in, in this uh, folkloric setting. Yeah, um, and uh, I guess the Wordalax is basically a vampire that preys uh, upon those that it most loved during a live. Um, so the, the only way to uh, defeat it is to stab it in the heart. But obviously, it's uh, difficult to stab one of your loved ones in the heart, who may still be, uh, if you're not convinced that he's actually uh, a vampire to begin with. Yeah. So this is actually closer to something like Quaidon, and I could say in the, its use of colored lighting, I could almost—I mean, I don't know exactly how the timelines match up, but if uh, Masaki Kobayashi said that. <laughs> that 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 story was an influence on the aesthetic of Quaidon, I would believe it. Um, I, yeah, I, I believe it too. I mean, certainly they, they had the colored gel lighting going on all over the place in here. Yeah, and it is very patient, uh, like Quaidon. Not as patient, not as no. slow paced. But no, Mario it, Bava is not that patient. <laughs> no, no, but it is, I would say this story is quite patient. Yes, um, there it, it isn't a lot of plot details. There isn't a lot of talking. Mostly, it involves the fact. That uh, the father, the aforementioned father, played by uh, Boris Karloff, comes back out from the cold and he just seems off. And everyone suspects there is just sort of this ambiguity where you don't know how much everyone suspects he's a vampire. Because as a viewer, you kind of know immediately. Yeah. But you don't know how much the family suspects he's a vampire or is just afraid to say it because it's such a horrible thought and they want to believe that their family did not just lose its patriarch. Um, Mm. And there, there's actually some, um, it it doesn't, you know, it doesn't turn into melodrama at any point, but there is actually a lot of emotional resonance in the scenario um, in which, you know, you could, you could tie it to something much more realistic, like say like just an alcoholic father or something like that. It has that feeling of, all right, he's back. We can all smell his breath. No one talk about it. Uh, he wants to play with the kid. We don't want him to start doing weird shit or saying th- offensive things, but we don't. Oh, yeah, okay, you can play with the kid. Like there is, it's it's very tense um, and very effective. Yeah, and you you don't know when he's going to turn or quite what he's going to do. I mean, they they certainly play up the the dog howling at it. it yeah, off with that and. I mean, that's obviously a fake dog howl. I think it, it repeats itself yeah. many times, but it, I think it still sounds fairly creepy. Well, so so anyway, I, I'm working my way to this, but I might as well say that my theory right now is that the theme of Black Sabbath, the, the message of Black Sabbath is that you don't have to believe uh, in something for to be scared by something. Sure. I, I think time and time again, especially as the film goes on, uh, Bava really emphasizes the fake, the fakeness of things and the stage bound of things and just how things are sets and how things are props and how things are makeup and mm-hmm. uh, 
and it the the lack of authenticity and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's so creepy and so scary. Um and it kind of makes sense as that being sort of his mission statement for his first color horror film which is well, I don't actually know if color makes things more realistic or less realistic than black and white movies. <laughs> uh I'm going to go ahead and try all three. All like all three versions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it does a good, good job, and I mean, it's a visually, it's, it's a terrific one. I, I think it looks better than the Hammer films yeah. uh, of the time. It looks it's, better it's, than the films of the time. It's a bit similar to the Hammer films in terms of set design and uh, yeah. production design and stuff like that, but the, the lighting is more audacious. Yeah, I mean, Bob was a great cinematographer. I, I think he's, a, he's certainly a better... Uh, uh, visual director than I think Terrence Fisher is. Yeah, uh, Fisher might be a little stronger on theme and uh, storytelling, but uh, right. Bava ha- runs circles around him visually. Yeah, and and Bava, I mean, I I don't know if I can say Black Sabbath is a revelation the way that Black Sunday is a revelation in terms of just like horror movie aesthetic, but yeah. it's close. It's damn close. <laughs> like I think Black Sunday is maybe the most gorgeous black and white horror film ever shot, and I think this is really really. This is really up there for the most gorgeous color horror film ever shot. And they happen within three years of each other <laughs> by the same guy. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why you got, you spent, what, two episodes on Baba? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, he, he is great. He's, he's a, he has a wonderful eye. Um, and and he, he can be serious and yet retain a sense of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think we should mention that Boris Karloff is really great. In the oh, room. he's very good. It's, it is, it is not a monster. Um, he is not uh, a sophisticate the way that a lot of Boris Karloff characters are. Mm-hmm. It is, he just feels like a walking corpse, <laughs> uh, yeah. without any makeup, just in his, the way his eyes are just kind of dead. Um, yeah. And, the, and he seems kind of abusive yet. He he doesn't really do anything that really crosses the line. Yeah, until he crosses the line. <laughs> right, and by then it's too late. Yeah, and I it really might be Boris Karloff's last great performance. Yeah, I I would buy that. I mean, when did Targets come out? Well, that came out a little later. I think it was like '68, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think that would be the last great Boris Karloff movie. But I don't know if I don't know necessarily Boris Karloff is the great part of that movie. <laughs> but I, not that he's bad, but. I, he's definitely not in, on the level that he is here. Yeah, I suppose I should see Sorcerers one of these days. I think that's supposed to be a, a good film and a good performance from uh, Karloff. But he's great in uh, Black Sabbath. Yeah, and it's a and and again, as as slowly he the 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 man who who stumbled upon this farmhouse, he's staying with this family, and you know before he knows it half the family, most of the family, all the family have all turned. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of happens in that way that I really like the ambiguity and the, the, the way that it is actually one of the reasons I love Nosferatu, the original, the Murnau film so much is because in Nosferatu, you just see bodies being carried out. You don't see every single person get, get their blood sucked. You don't really know yeah. how bad things are until, it just happens. And in this, you know, you don't see every character get it. It just kind of happens. Yep, it just kind of happens. And um, I, I think it, it's certainly, it might be the first creepy kid vampire I can think of. And I, apparently that, that must have been a uh, influence on uh, 
uh, Toby Hooper and Salem's Lot. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> and also this movie was remade as, I think, Night of the Demons. Hold on. I'm going to go grab the DVD. I have it real quick. <laughs> uh, you fill air. <laughs> I don't know if I can fill air, but I can, can say I, I think uh, it's really just a beautiful uh eerie scary film i mean it's scary in a 1960s horror way but it still has quite a bit of power to uh um, frighten and uh, all right it's definitely a different take on uh the vampire than uh something like dracula is which seems to emphasize the sex while this emphasizes family bonds and love as the way that the vampire exploits uh, yeah victims and just seeing that disintegrate is really unnerving um, so yeah, this was remade as Night of the Devils by Giorgio Ferroni, um, and it has that classic framing device where it's uh, someone in an insane asylum, and what has driven him insane? Well, he'll tell you his story, <laughs> you know, which we're actually going to be getting to uh, next. Um, but it, this is a pretty good film too. It's not it's not on Bava's level at all, but it is atmospheric. Um, and if you want to see the word of stretched out to feature length, Night of the Devil. This was actually voted on during our horror episode. Mm. Uh, one person gave Night of the Devils a vote. So, uh, and I and I saw and I watched it and I agree, it's good. Um, and then the okay, so we do need to get to the final story of Black Sabbath, which is just insane. It might be it might be Bava's best what twenty minutes of film ever. Yeah, yeah, it is just sustained nightmare uh, a very incredibly simplistic moral tale a caretaker for a dying woman steals the dying woman's ring dying woman haunts caretaker until caretaker dies of fright like yep. pretty basic um but everything is soaked in color you can see where uh uh bertolucci got the opening of um uh, the conformist <laughs> in the opening of this story where sure. the, with the flashing neon sign out the window, just bathing the entire apartment in different colored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she gets the call and she goes and it's the creepiest house in the history of mankind <laughs> there. It's not just that it's a Gothic old mansion looking thing. And it's not just that there's interesting colored gel lighting and that there's a dead woman with a creepy face at, in this bed it's the dolls it's it's never mentioned but there it's like (laughs) no one references it no one says oh her doll collection but like she just has porcelain dolls everywhere and like broken baby dolls and like arms and heads it's just everywhere in that room it is it's immaculate set design it is so good uh because again any words used to describe the actual events of the film are just going to sound basic and redundant um yeah it's not about the plot it's about the mood and the visuals and oh my god is that corpse a great looking corpse yeah horrible looking corpse it's it usually i don't get uh it's hard visually once you show something it's it's easy to become accustomed to it but i don't think it's lost any of its power even if i've seen this like several times that gross toothy grinning rictus uh it was actually sculpted by baba's father yeah, yeah, it looks great, and just the way the skin sags on it. And yeah, stuff. it's really unnerving, and and there's this like the sound design is great because I mean it's called the drop of water, and it is about it has mm-hmm. it's this classic uh, like just the 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 guilt as takes the form of 
constantly hearing the drop of water happen. Uh, it's the it's the Lady Macbeth spot on her hand, <laughs> you know. Except yeah. it, except it's the sound of dripping water. Yeah, and then they bring in insects too. Yeah, I mean a, a bee or so, or a wasp will land on her hand or a fly, and it just just to mark the spot where she has uh, sinned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fly lands right where the ring was. Um, it is so heightened and crazy and nightmarish and not based in anything. There's no characters really. There's no, no. there's no emotional life really. Uh, you don't find out. It's like, well, she was a bad caretaker. Or, well, she was a bad woman. Like they don't try mm-hmm. to put any kind of. They don't try to interest you with the morals of it. It is just an exercise. Yeah, there's there's hardly any dialogue. It, but it is the greatest <laughs> horror <laughs> filmmaking exercise maybe ever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's close to a perfect uh, anthology short as there is. Yeah, um, probably the best. I would say the best one, or and tied for my favorite uh, with one we'll talk about a little later. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I I think this is just a wonderful film. I mean, it's it's close to a masterpiece. If the telephone was better, it would be a masterpiece. Yeah, and uh, and. And, and the I telephone mean, is not bad, right? I mean, I think I still think of it as a masterpiece, just because the telephone being the least effective part and also the most realistic part kind of just emphasizes what makes the other two shorts so great. Um, sure. As 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 a ramp up from the telephone to drop of water, like without the telephone there, I don't know. I mean, there could have been a realistic version that was also just more effective, but. I don't know exactly what could be there that would make the film stronger as a whole. <laughs> like, yeah, I kind of like the, I, mean, I, I kind of like just that little appetizer at, at up front. Yeah, and certainly if it comes up front, if it, if it's if it's the least, and you uh, escalate from there, that that's just perfectly fine. I mean, how many first acts of a film are great? Right. Um. So, and then the movie ends with the the closing framing device or the the closing framing segment, which is just. Boris Karloff sort of trotting along on his horse saying, well, that's the story. It's pretty spooky, right? <laughs> and, then, and then the camera just keeps zooming out and you see it's this fake ass, <laughs> just like a horse head on a device that trots. Yeah. And I actually want watching for it this time. There is one shot in the Wordalac that uses that. So it wasn't <laughs> yeah. just constructed for the ending. It was actually, there's one shot of Boris Karloff riding a horse yeah, that lasts and- and the stagehands running around. With yeah, matches. yeah, and it keeps zooming out, and it gets more and more fake as you see someone like shooting fog, and you see the person like bouncing a light, and you see stagehands running by with branches to make it look like he's walking past a trees. <laughs> and then it's just the silliest thing, and it's it's what it's a wonderful way to close that that film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it says don't take it too seriously here; just have fun with it. Right. And, um, I mean, it, it it reveals it's all a trick, but but. We're we're having fun, and you should have fun too. And now, from the illusions of filmmaking, we travel to the real world of corporate sponsors. It takes two hands to handle 
Beware of the Astro Zombies. They mutilate, they torture, they kill. Spine-tingling horror, unspeakable shock, and breathless excitement will grip you as you watch living organs ripped from the bodies of voluptuous females as beating hearts and throbbing brains are transplanted to create the Astro Zombies. Cringe in terror, scream in fright as these skull-faced monsters strike blindly at living flesh and the motion picture screen flows in the blood-drenched wake of the Astro Zombies. The beautiful, voluptuous, deadly... Vicious Satana, a woman who would stop at nothing to gain control over the Astro Zombies, whose creed was kill, kill, kill. John Carradine as the deranged scientist, Wendell Corey as the doctor who opposes him, match wits in this bloody, sadistic, terror-filled, suspense-laden horror film of brutal mutilations and senseless killings as the Astro Zombies go berserk and threaten a city with death. Watch it and you die a thousand deaths. The Astro Zombies in color coming soon to your local theater. We'd like to welcome you back as Patrick and Robert examine that wacky British studio Amicus and their love affair with EC Comics. We're going to take on two Amicus films. Now you wanted to see two, you wanted to do two uh, Amicus films. I, I just think because they, they uh ticked out so many that it, it's important to at least touch on them. And we yeah. have two, two, I won't say important directors, but notable directors in Roy Ward Baker and Freddie Francis that are worth uh, uh, discussing their, their relative strengths and weaknesses. So Asylum opens with the greatest, <laughs> the greatest ramp up to the uh, title of maybe any horror movie ever. I, it is, it is silly because it is Night on Bald Mountain is the music playing. And yes. it is the most cliche horror movie, like classical piece of music ever. Um, except that <laughs> except that it just keeps building and building to the most perfect 70s titles, title <laughs> shot, which is the, yep. the, the asylum is framed. The car is driven up to the asylum. The asylum's framed on one end, and on the other end, just in big red block text with the copyright information under it. It's just right as the horns in Night on Bald Mountain come in. Mana Asylum! <laughs> and it's, it's such a delight. It made me so happy. Um, that, that carried me. That, that gave, I, got, I instantly had so much goodwill for it. Because the other two Asylum films I had seen uh, were... Before before preparing for this episode, were uh, Doctor Train, Doctor Ho- Terrors, House of Horrors, House of Horrors, or whatever. That one, which is I thought was just really goofy and not mm-hmm. and not very effective and kind of dull. Mm-hmm. And then there was, was uh, goofy too, but this one this one is a little like this one actually like that one was just silly, and this one has a sense of humor. Right. And it's like an important difference, but I feel like there's no wit in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Mm-hmm. And then the other one I saw was from Beyond the Grave, which also, I think, uh, ha- is rather silly and goofy. Yeah, but I, I understand Peter Cushing figures prominently in both of those, so that's something to, to see. But I think these are, uh, I think Asylum is, is probably a, a pretty good example of how you do a frame and uh, string some stories together. Um so that the frame is actually interesting. It's not just marking time while you're uh, uh, waiting for the stories. That's right. Now, I watched these like back-to-back, so I might get them a little mixed up. What is 
the framing device is that a doctor comes to asylum uh, for a job, and right. is, he tries to report the head doctor, but the head doctor has gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and there's that great thing in all of these movies. There's always a doctor. And it doesn't matter what someone experiences. They go, well, that's perfectly natural, of course. <laughs> so it's like, an explanation for that. Yeah, I mean, it's perfectly natural to when dealing with madmen to become a madman. Like that's <laughs> we hear about that all the time. <laughs> like it's the most natural thing in the world. Yes, um, so part of the interview process, they send the the new young doctor upstairs uh, to interview uh, four patients, and he's supposed to determine who the uh, old ahead of the asylum was right as and he's escorted by an orderly um right who who is very cheeky who is getting a real kick out of it <laughs> now the first now the first patient is uh bonnie is the one called frozen fear about which bonnie tells the story about a plot for uh um i guess her uh the man she's having an affair with walter who is uh plotting to kill his uh wife ruth um and then run away with with uh, bonnie uh and basically uh, ruth is uh was in africa and has this sort of voodoo uh amulet which is supposed to protect her that's right that's the voodoo angle is actually quite prominent in a lot of amicus st- st- yeah. uh stories and it's always very uncomfortable yeah. I yeah. can't believe you're listening to that black witch doctor. <laughs> like you have to put the word black in there. Of course you do. Uh, but this uh the 70s or 60s and uh um I mean it basically ends up that Walter takes his wife downstairs and say, "Oh, well, here's a new gift for you, a a, a freezer." And she basically says, "Oh, just what I've always wanted." Yeah. And then he and then he murders her, cuts her to pieces and puts her in the freezer. Right. With the uh, uh, with the epitaph, uh, what rest in pieces? Yeah, yeah, classic, <laughs> classic. Jim would have loved that one, I would think. Yeah, J- Jim, Jim would be all over that one. Um, <laughs> and I, at first I was like, oh, it's too bad you don't get to see him dismembering her. They they didn't get, it. but it actually is more effective that way because he, all her bits are wrapped up in uh, like butcher paper, right, and tied up neatly, and tied up neatly in the way that only a wife murdering Brit could do. <laughs> If a if a man in America murdered his wife, he would not he would not use twine in such a fashion. <laughs> uh, I'm saying that right now. Um, but so as he's waiting, you know, as he's waiting for his partner in crime, his lover, to get to get to the house so they can run away, um, he starts to hear noises and is sort of haunted by her bouncing head. It's still alive <laughs> because voodoo, like that's. Couldn't couldn't she have gotten a charm that saved her from being murdered? <laughs> like wear the think so. Wear this ineffective charm. Wear this. If you're ever in the event that you're dismembered, your pieces will avenge you. <laughs> yeah, they all become animated, and I think some of it is quite silly. Uh, it, but, uh, it, it's silly, but it's the I think the effects are the effects are definitely simple, but they're mm-hmm. effective enough that you. You yeah. buy it. They, you don't. There's no obvious things where it's like, well, it's clearly just a string pulling it. Like it's it's pretty good puppetry, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I do like the the headless thing where it kind of breathes in and out, and the yeah. paper moves in and out. Yeah, that's that's a real nice uh, effect. Um, I mean, and uh, apparently it you know, it's it strangles Walter, uh, which which I buy, and then when 
uh, Bonnie shows up, uh, the, the pieces attack her. Yeah. Uh, culminating with a hand uh, uh, grabbing her on the face, and she starts chopping at it with an axe and uh, ends up uh, hatcheting her own face. And then, and then after the, so then after the story ends, she turns around and looks at the doctor, and you see that she's scarred. And it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, she must have really chopped a hand. Yep. Yeah, if, if it's not a twist, it's a, a punchline, which a lot of these uh, short horror anthologies have. Sure, sure. It's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first story, which I, I, I enjoy. It's it's uh, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, then it, you get to uh, uh, The Weird Tailor, which is the Peter Cushing uh, story of uh, him hiring a, a, a tailor to make a special magical suit for him. I was, I was a bit disappointed... Uh, at where the tailor went, because it, it's a pretty—he's a pretty milquetoast main character. Most of the time, you at least get to get some uh, enjoyment out of the wickedness of the main characters yeah. <laughs> of these stories, knowing they're they're going to get their comeuppance. But this character is just this poor put upon tailor. Is he? Is what accent does he have? I don't know. It's some sort of European accent, I think. But... He's just some poor uh, immigrant tailor, I guess. Like Italian, I guess. <laughs> yeah, pr- possibly Italian tailor who. He's going to get kicked out of his shop unless he comes up with the rent. And it just so happens that Peter Cushing has uh, the rent money if he makes this arcane <laughs> sort of suit out of this magical material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I know this is a story that Block told before, and uh, uh, he did it in Thriller, uh, the TV series, and he readapted it for Asylum. Oh, really? Uh, so this is kind of a, a Lovecraftian thing that... Uh, Block did. I mean, Block and uh, Lovecraft were pen pals at one point, and they delightfully killed each other off in short stories that they had written previously. What's the Lovecraftian part of it? Well, I mean, this is a the they have the arcane book. It's like uh, the Necronomicon, but I think it's it's probably a, a Block's book that he created, which is um, uh, Divermis Mysteries or the Mysteries of the Worm. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's uh, that. I mean, the arcane thing is 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 definitely a, a Lovecraft block uh, thing there with a with a grimoire. Sure, um, magical book. It's uh, apparently uh, all of uh, Lovecraft's friends were creating books, and they all would reference them in each other's stories. Uh, Robert E. Howard had a had a book that uh, Lovecraft would mention, and uh, Clark Ashton Smith and Robert Block. That's fun. I mean, it's kind of like the first little, I won't say the first Easter eggs, but it was certainly Easter eggs where they were having fun with each other's stories and giving little nods here and there. Yeah. So the the suit turns out has a special purpose, which is to reanimate uh, Peter Cushing's dead son. Yeah. And I, I think that's what makes the story good, is that you, you get to see the depth of character of Peter Cushing, how sad he is uh, in regards to... Uh, his uh, dead son and his motives and how desperate he is that he's it would make sense to him but it certainly sounds crazy to everybody else yeah I, I can't say that I, I was a big fan of him in this um, it was it was just not a I just didn't find it terribly interesting I could see kind of where it was going and it didn't really turn into an interesting version of that yeah. uh, it is a the effective twist at the end is, Peter Cushing has no money because he spent all of his money getting this book and the material so he can raise his dead son. So the tailor, in a fit of rage, kills Peter Cushing. I, well, 
Maybe not in a fit of rage. Uh, more like, it's self-defense as well. Self-defense. It's, he's very yeah. angry, and then there's an altercation. Yeah, he, he refuses to give uh, Cushing the suit without any money, and they, they fight, and then Cushing gets shot. So as he comes home, he wants to burn the suit because it's evil, um, but his wife says, well, we can't just burn this. This is too valuable. So his wife, mm-hmm. not knowing what the suit is, puts it on a mannequin. Right. And then he and the the tailor starts fighting with his wife. Uh, I don't know if he actually gets violent, but he certainly sounds threatening. And then the mannequin comes to life and uh, comes to defend the the wife. Yeah, and that's that's kind of it. <laughs> it's it's just, it's I like the mannequin effects at the end, but yeah. uh, everything I like else the about suit it effects too. What yeah? What is it's just sort there's sort it's sort of like phosphorescent the material. Yeah, it kind of glows in various colors and. I, I think that's a, a neat effect, and I, I I think we should point out the mannequin looked exactly like Burt Reynolds. Oh, I guess he kind of did. <laughs> I didn't notice that. That these Amicus movies, it's funny. I think the effect actually wasn't as noticeable of the glowing material because these Amicus movies, I don't know, I don't know what technically it was, but they tend to feel kind of like soft in focus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that might be part of the director uh roy ward baker i don't yeah. think he's as strong a visual director as uh, uh I mean, he came out of ha- hammer as well actually he, he came before that he had uh directed a night to remember uh-huh. uh, so he's actually has one of the uh better uh um, resumes of uh, one of these horror directors um at least in legitimate film and then he kind of fell off fell off the wagon it was reputed to be a heavy drinker, although I think he kind of cleaned himself up in the late 60s. Um, his best film in the uh, horror uh, line is, is definitely The Quatermass uh, in the Pit, um, which if you and Gabe do uh, your uh, horror roundup this Halloween will definitely be mentioned. Sure. I know Gabe's a big fan. Oh, yeah. So... Um... Yeah, I don't know if we're doing that. Yeah. We'll find out. But uh... but as I said, I think I think Roy Ward Baker is it has has some talent, um, but he's he's not the strongest visual director. Yeah, and it's it doesn't the movies aren't hurt. It doesn't feel like mm-hmm. deadly the way that uh, Doctor Doctor Terror's House of Horrors yeah. felt just like really bland. Yeah, I, I think that they have a sense of humor to these stories too, which I think helps. Yeah, yeah. So then the next story is. Uh, Lucy comes to stay. Oh, that's right. This is another. Uh, also, wasn't the biggest fan of <laughs> of this one. Not, uh, not biggest fan because it has a twist that I don't think ever works. Which where... is which is I oh, have a this... I have a friend, and it turns out the friend is my other personality. Right. It comes off better here than I think it does in Trilogy of Terror. Uh huh. But it it's certainly. Yeah, I see this twist coming a mile away. Well, it helps that they got a different actress. <laughs> yes, it does help. Other, other than Trilogy of Terror, where you're like, where you uh, you instantly know what the ending of tril- of that segment of Trilogy of Terror is, and then you're just waiting for it to do something else, <laughs> and it never <laughs> does. Nope. No, 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 that's it. it. They don't think that you know who Karen Black is, even though you just watched Karen Black for 15 minutes in that other st- short. <laughs> um, but, no, but So this I, one is Charlotte Rampling. Right. Um, disturbed individual coming home to live with her brother. Right. She from, has some coming back from rehab of some sort. Yeah, she has some sort of pill addiction. Mm-hmm. Whatever those pills are, 
You would think if she's coming back from some sort of hospital with a mental trauma that those pills would be uh, prescribed, but apparently the pills are what caused the problem. Apparently. Yeah. Like, it's, I mean, very... it's never really clear. I mean, right. she's, she's an addict that caused the problem. It seems hard that she's ever uh, acted normally because these, these pills, when she finds some hidden away, they seem to take effect instantly. Yeah, she takes one and instantly she sees her alter ego and basically, the alter ego is like, you know, your brother doesn't have your best interest in heart. Let's kill him. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's do it. Turns out, us is me. The end. It's, <laughs> I don't know. I it's 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 not terrible. It's not it's not tedious in the no. way that the the segment in Trilogy of Terror is, but it's certainly not that memorable to me. No, I, I don't. I agree. I think uh, Britt Eklund is pretty decent as Lucy and Charlotte Rampling. Champling's fine, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing unexpected here. Nothing we haven't seen a hundred times before. And speaking of trilogy of terror, the last story, which is just the conclusion of the framing device, uh, is similar to the last story in trilogy of terror as far as its pleasures, which is the last patient is a man who is building these little robot dudes, <laughs> and <laughs> he says if he concentrates hard enough, he can put his consciousness into one. And he does so, and the little robot dude kills the other doctor. Yep. Not much more to it than that. It's, 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 it's always like... fun to see little toys walk around and kill someone. <laughs> it is. And I, I think that the way they, they pull off the murder actually fairly well there, too. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty good setup. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the sort of virtuosic, virtuoso sort of quality that the last segment of Trilogy of Terror has. Uh there's it, it isn't a big extended sequence, but it's a it's a fun one. Yeah, it is, and I think Herbert Lom is very good as uh, the mad patient who can control the robot and making the putting his face on on the robot. I think works surprisingly well. Yeah, yeah, and then and then the the twist is that that orderly was actually the doctor who went crazy, right? And, and then he kills the other doctor, and then another doctor comes, <laughs> and it's the and it's the dead of night thing where the movie just keeps going on forever. <laughs> Although you would think that somebody at the asylum would uh, notice, because there are definitely security guards and uh, um, other other attendants around. It's a it's an odd asylum. It looks <laughs> more like someone's house than an asylum. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's pretty standard for uh, the British manor house uh, studio system at the time, where they just take this big manor house and gut it, and here's our here's our movie studio. Yeah. And look, we have an instant uh, outdoor set. There you go. That's uh, that's that was the that was the hammer motto. It's like you can shoot anywhere you want as long as it's within walking distance. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I, I think it's a it's a nice set, and I I, I like this one overall. I, I think Block's sense of humor is is pretty good, and I like the way that the the framing device resolves itself. I, I think comparing it to Dead of Night is, is dead on because it's a. Uh, it's a this cycle is going to repeat. Yep, and we kind of like the um, the new doctor because he he talks about uh, uh, all the things you're supposed to be about being compassionate and working with these patients. Well, uh, the old uh, doctor downstairs just want to lock them up and maybe lobotomize them. Yep, and then he turned out to be the one who was correct because these movies <laughs> are pretty conservative, <laughs> all things told. Yeah, well, all, all horror movies tend to be pretty conservative. You sin, you will be punished. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess that I would say these seem conservative for horror movies. Whereas, yeah. like, you look at the horror movies in America in the 70s, they felt like they were all being made by hippies. Yeah. And you look at the 
horror movies <laughs> made in Britain in the 70s, and they yeah. feel like they were made all by the aristocracy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, although I believe, uh, uh, well, Block is an American, and uh, uh, I believe the producer, Milton Sabosky, who kind of come up with the uh, anthology format for Animicus is American, too. So oh, okay. It's, it's kind of it's kind of strange, but yeah, there's there's definitely a more conservative flavor to uh, um, uh, the Amicus films, the Amicus anthologies. Um, I mean, Black was right out of Milwaukee, so he's very Midwestern. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's where he was aware of Ed Gein uh, because of he's from Milwaukee and, and was hev- cover- covered heavily in uh, um, the newspaper here. So that's why uh, that's part where Cycle emerged. <laughs> And then now we have another Amicus film, uh, Tales from the Crypt, which has a much less uh, involving framing device. Yeah. It's actually much – it's basically the same thing as Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, where it's here's all the ways you're going to (laughs) die. Yep. I I mean it's all the ways you're going to die. I mean they get the – Ralph Richardson is a crypt keeper who – a bunch of people wander into a crypt and he kind of uh, gives a third degree to each of them saying, you don't know why you're here? Let me uh, reveal it to you. And then you go through each of the stories. I mean, I, I wish they had given Ralph Richardson a lot more to do because, you know, he's a, a, a very capable actor. Oh, yeah. Um, I, but uh, they, they must have filmed all of his stuff in like... T- Two and, days? Yeah, if that. I'd be very surprised <laughs> if it was two days. Um, <laughs> but uh, so the first story is very fun, and it was and it was told again because it's based off of a issue of uh, Vault of Horror, I believe, like an EC right. comic. I think all of these are. Yeah, all in, of them are in from this Tales of the Crypt or Vault, or Vault of Horror, so they're all direct adaptations. So. This one, and this was, again, adapted by Richard Donner for uh, Tales from the Crypt, the the HBO yeah. show. Wasn't it the pilot? Um, no, the pilot was Walter Hill's uh, executioner who okay. goes out of work, becomes a vigilante, gets caught, and then they reinstate, they the reinstate death that yeah. death penalty. <laughs> right, which, I mean, these are... These are uh, I mean, I think it's, it's important to say that this is the first uh, direct adaptation of EC Comics. Yeah, uh, and EC Comics obviously holds a, a big um, spot in the pop culture consciousness of, of horror, which I mean, certainly HBO took advantage of it. And you know all the EC stories are you've sinned and you are going to get some ironic punishment at the end. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's always fun to see how this works out. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, when it, that is the format, then you're just dealing with wicked people who are actively doing a wicked thing. And that right. the, the main characters aren't just purely reacting, right? They have some agency, and they they have they make the choice to sin, and then they and then they can't avoid their fate, right? So the first one is the the one that we were just talking about that was remade by Richard Donner. This is I, I don't know if they all have titles in this, but this is a woman kills and all through the house is the title of it, and all through the house, woman kills her wonderful husband. <laughs> <laughs> not, a, not a not a care in the world. Just kills her husband out because she's a bad person. I don't know how she plans to get away with it. She does it while her kid is there. <laughs> it's yeah. Chris. It's Christmas Eve. She just out of nowhere kills him with a fireplace poker. Um, but then escape mental patient, <laughs> classic. 
Skate Mental Dressed as Santa. Dressed as Santa, double classic. <laughs> is torment is is terrorizing her and she can't call the police because her husband's corpse. Um, right. It's a it's a very fun one. It's it's not quite the slasher movie that you would necessarily think. There's uh it's, no, it, the, the the killer doesn't really get into the house until the very end. Right. He just kind of hangs outside the window and yeah. she can't call the cops because she has a body there and until she covers up the crime and makes it look like an accident, uh she'd just be exposing herself. Yeah, see I had seen um I had seen the Richard Donner version uh first and that one is just a slasher movie exercise where it's there's running in and out and there's a chase and then there's all those all those beats. It's basically him just having a ball making a making a twenty minute slasher movie. Yeah. And this is this is not that, but it is still a lot yeah. of fun seeing her trying to deal simultaneously juggle uh, a a Santa killer outside, her <laughs> daughter upstairs and her husband's body in the in the basement. Yeah, you got three things going on in twenty minutes. I think that, that makes for a pretty terrific short story. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a, it's eventful to say the least. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I do like all the the covering up the crime uh, parts of that, and I think they spend the most time on that. I don't think it would actually work, but that doesn't matter. She's going to get her punishment at the end. Yeah, yeah. Because what happens is her her daughter, who's too excited to go to sleep for Christmas, sees the maniac outside and lets him in. <laughs> yep. So Father Christmas is there, and presumably he. I don't know. He dismembers the kid and the, and the mom. <laughs> yeah, we don't care about the kid here. No, no, no. The kid's besides the point. Um, God, I don't know how he married her. <laughs> like every every part of the of their life seems perfect except for her. Usually, it's like, well, he cheated on me, and I'm getting my revenge. But they okay. actually show him writing a love note to her, and like putting a putting a present under the tree, giving a little dainty kiss and just like his <laughs> devotion to her is so blinding. <laughs> he doesn't see that she's homicidal. Nope. I mean, I, maybe he, she married him. Maybe she's a classic gold digger, but it's, uh, it's, it's hard to see, but I guess it's none of these stories are really concerned about the past. It's just sure. about, here's the sin and here's the punishment. So that's a fun, that's a fun one. The next one, not in, not as into, not, not good. <laughs> uh, adulterer gets into a car crash, right? Climbs out of the. It's it's almost like a I don't know. It's like a Carnival of Souls thing almost. Yeah. <laughs> he gets into a car crash, doesn't realize he's dead, crawls out of it, and is walking around. And somehow it's two years later. They don't. It doesn't make any sense. Um, no. Because you would think they would take his body out of the car. But he pulls himself from the wreckage, so I don't know. Maybe it's all in his head to begin with. Well, it's he he wakes up from a dream, and then the car crashes, and then uh, pulls himself out, and nobody will stop to pick him up. They all kind of run away in fear. Yeah. Oh, that's right, because it's a dream. It's the dream in the dream thing. Right. Because the. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I I guess there's not much to this one. I no. Mean, it's really. Yep. He he. Finds out that yep he's been dead all along here. It's just it's just a build up to the zombie makeup, which isn't that great to begin with. No, it isn't. I mean, there's there's not much plot to it. There's not much horror to it. I mean, it's like a, a five second shot yeah. uh, of death, and I mean he he's he's obviously sinning, but he doesn't seem uh, all that uh, bad to begin with. I mean, he's not like 
killing his wife and running off. He's just running off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In in the world in the world of EC Comics, the fact that he doesn't first murder his wife before <laughs> leaving her and his children that that really does say a lot about him. He's not a bad guy. Um, well, the, I, the, in comparison, <laughs> what now? What that story lacks in uh, event uh, and and flavor, the next story makes up for. <laughs> it is delightfully weird. <laughs> it, yep. it features so the the premise of the next one is that Peter Cushing is a friendly neighborhood dustman. What what is this? Tell me about this English. I guess he's I guess he's the local garbage man or the guy that the village hires to come pick up your trash or your so stuff he's a so he's a government employee right <laughs> but everyone acts like he is this like insane homeless person who happens to have a house <laughs> in the good part of town oh yeah so uh, there is a man who's like oh he's so filthy he must be so filthy that man he's bringing down our property values with his dogs and his filth and what what like it is <laughs> it is the most obnoxious rich uh english guy in in a series that is mostly obnoxious, rich English guys. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and Peter Cushing is the saint who is just like, I love all the children. <laughs> like, <he's, laughs> like, it's funny. His voice actually sounds similar to, uh, you, you remember the Boris Karloff movie, The Black Room? I don't believe I've seen that one. Oh, man. So Boris Karloff plays his own twin brother. Okay. And in order to make really hard distinction up between them, uh, even though they look identical, is is there's the good brother and the bad brother. And the bad brother's like, no, oh, I'm getting what I'm coming to me. And the, and the good brother's like, I just want to help the children of the world. And it's, and it's like, it's so funny because he's overacting in both counts. And the saintly version of Boris Karloff always cracks me up. And, <laughs> And Peter Cushing actually has the same voice as saintly Boris Karloff in this. Where he's just like, oh, I love all the children. Where have the children gone? I want to bring them toys that I've fixed up. <laughs> and <laughs> and, as, and meanwhile, uh, uh, venture capitalist is like, if I could get them out of there, we could get that property dirt cheap. What? Like, just awful. <laughs> I'm making him sound like – I'm giving him the garbage man voice cause, <laughs> because he's just, he's just so over-the-top terrible. Um, and basically through a string of pranks and, uh, more insidious things, he torments Peter Cushing into taking his own life. Right. I think culminating with a bunch of, uh, poisoned Valentine's Day letters that, uh, rhyme. Yeah. You say poison, but actually it's just, it's just like mean rhymes. So right. not only is this guy an asshole, he has the emotional life of like an eighth grader. <laughs> Where he's like, roses are red, violets are blue, Julie Delphi smells, I hate her. Like, it's that <laughs> level of just garbage. But it's, it's bull, like, but, you know, nonetheless, whether it's an eighth grader doing it or a 40 year old man doing it, it's bullying. And bullying, yeah. bullying is gonna lead to, uh, bullying is gonna lead to someone committing suicide. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's important to note that I think Peter Cushing is really very good in this uh, segment. Um, in a funny way, or do you think he's like genuinely good? I think he's genuinely good because I, I think uh, in 1971 his wife died, uh -huh. um, and it really hit him hard. He lost weight, and uh, he uh, was really in the dumps for a long time there. Um, and he, in this one, he's definitely very sad because his wife is not there. He 
the the tombstone says uh, the wife's name is Mary, but he refers to her in, when he's speaking as Helen, which is the name of his real life wife. Um, oh, weird. Okay, so it just when he was doing the scene, he would use his own wife's name. Yes, to, to kind of channel the the sadness and that. And and they didn't change the tombstone. No, they didn't. <laughs> Probably because it cost money. But ah, we already built the tombstone. Yeah. Yeah, and it's actually his the 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 photo they use in there is actually of his uh, real life wife uh, in there. So when he's referring to her, so I think I think that's part of what I I really like about that. Sure, Cushing is very sad, and I think he sells that sadness. Yeah, I think probably very well. I think probably the story itself is just a little too dopey for me to to yeah. get on board with. Uh, but regardless, well, I understand that, but. But I mean, I I think that's that's part of what I really like about the story, though, is that I think Cushing is giving a real performance and is driven from a, from a place of sincerity. Uh huh. Well, that's fair. But anyhow, as we were saying, uh, so he he's driven to suicide. So obviously, you have to have the the turn uh, as as a comic would the ironic ending. So um, basically, what a year after he dies, which is on Valentine's Day. Uh, Zombie Peter Cushing comes uh, back from the grave, and and kills the the young the the son that's uh, b- b- writing those poison pen letters that were driving him to suicide, and then the the father finds uh, hit the son dead the next day with a note. Um, <laughs> that has neither that has no meter to it. <laughs> like Peter Cushing was a one that the Peter Cushing's character was a wonderful man, but he could not write poetry, <laughs> even ironically. <laughs> but and basically saying, um, basically saying that. Well, it doesn't say it. It says that he found that that he he was finds this, the note says that he was bad and he had had no, and then he. The father unfolds the wrapping paper and then finds a heart there. A beating heart. Yes. It's a nice little gore shot there. <laughs> it makes up for the zombie. Yeah, the zombie's not good. Uh, although I, I guess if we get Peter Cushing in zombie uh, makeup for once in his life, I think that's that's something to note. Oh, oh, the, I, I was talking about the zombie from the previous story. I had forgotten that there is actually like one shot of the zombie. Yeah, uh, the zombie, the zombie Peter Cushing. Is that... I I assume that was not him in the makeup because there's no, I mean it looks I mean it might have a similar head or whatever but there's no facial features that you yeah, recognize. Uh, it's, it's under so much makeup, who can tell? Right, yeah, but it is uh, Peter Cushing's character does become a zombie. Yeah, I thought that was all right. I didn't think that was bad. I I was just disappointed by the the fact that the story previously was all built up to a punchline that was kind of lame. Yeah, this one I think has a good punchline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. It's uh and it's and it's uh. It is dopey in a way that is very tolerable when it is that length. <laughs> if there was a feature length movie with that tone, it would be it would be the worst. But yeah, well, these are all about fifteen minutes, so that's right. That's because sad. this is, and by the way, we haven't talked about it, but like the structure of anthology horror sometimes changes because there's the triptych, and then there's more like the four or five story right uh, movie, and there's even some that are just two story movies. Um. I, I I prefer more stories. If if there isn't a really strong overarching theme and aesthetic uh, that connects the stories, then I prefer there to be a lot of them as opposed to just three. Whereas like you know Black Sabbath, that those stories all feel interlocked in a very satisfying way, even if they have right. nothing to do with each other. And that one, I appreciate that it's a triptych. 
Yeah, quite on two. Even yeah. though that's four, but which seems to be the, the normal length. But. Right, but yeah. But uh, I don't know. Which one do you prefer? Do you prefer a lot of stories? Or do you prefer just like three stories? I, I think overall I prefer a lot. Just, just because you get some variety there and you can try some different things. And most of these can't support being too long anyhow. So get in, right. get out. Yeah, yeah. You can't, Have some fun. Yeah, you can't waste too much time. Uh, waste too much of the viewer's time if all the time you have is 14 minutes. <laughs> get in, show the sin, show the punishment. Yeah. Get yeah. out. Maybe have a punchline or two in there. Right. Um, so then what is the next one? Next one is um, the, the the monkey's paw oh, variant. The, the weird postmodern monkey's paw where <laughs> – that's the weirdest – so this is a version of The Monkey's Paw in which the characters are constantly referencing that short story, The Monkey's Paw, and then do the exact same things as the characters <laughs> in The Monkey's Paw. It is so odd. It's not like, oh, they know about The Monkey's Paw, so they are clever. Like, it is, it just is The Monkey's Paw, except that they keep talking about The Monkey's Paw, the fictional <laughs> short story. And then making the silly mistakes. <laughs> yeah, but, like, there's no real good twist there where it's like, Oh. oh, I read the monkey's paw, so I'll be super specific. And then the specificity is, and and then it like inverts it somehow. It is just the same thing as the monkey's paw, right? It it, it pretty much is. I mean, it, it it tries. I mean, I guess referencing it to a story that you already know. I, I'm surprised they picked this one, right? Um, because I mean, you're going to have comparisons to the monkey's paw either way. So if you you try to be clever, I guess, but it it doesn't really work i mean i think it's okay i think the acting is fine in it and i think some of the uh, effects i think the um you know we got a bad businessman who, who basically going bankrupt yeah. and owes a lot of people that and he seems to be followed by somebody that uh appears to want to torture him wearing some sort of skull-faced uh mask while they're riding a motorcycle behind him i think the the shot of the the mask being revealed in the uh, mirror reflection is, is, is fairly effective. Yeah, um, I, li- and I, li- I like the implication that this is an alternate ver- way of where A New Leaf, the uh, Walter Matthau movie, could have went. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that that's that's pretty good. I mean, Freddie Francis good, uh, is a very good visual director. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame uh, quality uh, DP or director of photography. Um, won an Oscar for Sons and Lovers and... Uh, uh, did the innocence? You haven't seen the innocence yet, have no, you? No, I have not. Oh, that you're going to be really impressed with the cinematography of that. It's one of the great ghost stories. Yeah, I can't uh, wait. Then he then he kind of uh, fell into being a director. Um, you kind of see the Peter principle in action there. He had some some good films. I, I think uh, Dracula has risen through the grave is fun, and I I like uh, Tales from the Crypt. You can see some of it uh, his his talent in there, but he seemed to be a better cinematographer than that so after his uh, directing career petered out he went back to uh, cinematography and he directed uh, the elephant man or he did his cinematographer on the elephant man the french lieutenant's woman oh wow glory cape fear uh straight story um and a, a bunch of other films but i mean he he was a, a great cinematographer mm-hmm. and i mean that that's his his strong suit his storytelling is not always that strong uh but his uh his his camera eye is, is usually pretty good. Yeah, no, it, Tales from the Crypt is definitely a step up from Asylum visually. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, the the monkey's paw story, I I just enjoy it on a dopey level. Like even <laughs> just 
we have to sell all this stuff. Hey, do you ever notice this inscription on the statue? <laughs> <laughs> like that's how they explain how they had this like monkey's paw all this whole time is that they just they never bothered to read the inscription. <laughs> they just bought it somewhere. Yeah. And now the next one is actually the only story in Tales from the Crypt that I think you could make a feature out of. Yeah, you it's, could make a feature out of this. It's one. a final one and it's a it's a very standard kind of wicked warden yeah. um story, but the thing is, it's not a prison. It's a, uh, it's like an old folks' home for the blind, right? And yeah. this, and this former military man becomes the manager of it, and all he cares about is money and pinching pennies. Mm-hmm. Pinching pennies for the residents, not for uh, himself. That's he'll, right. He's very greedy. Yeah, he'll 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 put his he'll put uh, uh, he'll send the budget to buy nice paintings for his office and he'll eat steak or some some nice food and he'll be happily give it to the dog while he feeds uh, the the blind in uh blind uh residents uh food that probably isn't fit for a dog right right <laughs> so the there's just like a montage not a montage but it's just like one shot and five people in a row just all complain about the food in rapid succession <laughs> and that, that stuff always cracks me up the uh the Britishisms of it. There's just like I don't, I couldn't, I can't even think of the exact words they use, but they're just like rotten filth, dust bin <laughs> rubbish. Like there's just there's the, the way they complain about it is very British. Um, uh, but so he basically thinks he can keep doing this forever because they're blind, and what are they going to do? Yeah, and he has a, a a German shepherd um as his companion that's, that's well trained and obviously more than a match for the. The blind man, apparently. I mean, I think the warden even quotes in the Land of the Blind, the one-eyed man is king. Yes. So. So he set up. He sets himself up pretty well for yeah, the riding. Yeah, but the but the blind but the blind men have this other idea, and they all band together and save little scraps of meat to lock the dog somewhere, uh, lock the dog in like a basement, and then they capture the warden and lock him in a room, and then. They just start building something. It is a very for an anthology horror film for like story. It is a very long sequence of building something. Yes, and you yeah, got to take up like a a good half the episode. Half the, the episode is just hammer sound effects and and sawing. It's like the classic just under construction sound effect. Um, yeah, yeah. The dog barking in another room. Right, and and the. And it turns out what they've created is uh, a set piece from Saw. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Where they've created a very narrow hallway the man has to walk through that is covered in razor blades. And it's like, it's real. I mean, it doesn't get graphic with how bad he gets it. Um, But he has to kind of inch his way through because he can barely squeeze through and he gets a little cut on his hand or whatever. But the implication of just seeing all those razor blades... They're not nails. They're not. They're just razor blades, and the and the camera sort of pushing through that hallway is a really effective uh, moment. Yeah, it, 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 it's told visually very well. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't shut off the lights uh, ahead of time, but I guess they want to see him to see what's coming. Right. Or, uh, yeah. Also, it probably wouldn't be as scary for the audience if they no. turned off the lights. <laughs> probably not. You want to see all the razor yeah. blades. I'm sure, I'm sure if they had a bigger budget, they could toss in some barbed wire and some other stuff. Yeah. 
some razor wire or something to, and then, to really send it off. But I, so, I think it's a very effective uh, set design. And, it, and it's a very clever little moment because he squeezes through it. He gets some cuts on his hands and stuff, and he's mostly fine. But then they've starved his German shepherd, and they unleash it, and it chases him, and then it cuts to black before you see what... But the implication of, oh, he's going to have to run through that now, <laughs> it's a really clever uh, device. Yeah, you don't know if the dog got him or the razor blades got him. You just don't think he gets it. Yeah, and it's it's a more genuine, like, inspiration and inventiveness than you normally see out of a story like this. Like, the one thing about these story, the one thing about anthology horror in general that's, that's good and bad is that you know exactly what you're going to get. <laughs> Usually, yeah. you very rarely are you ever surprised, so they're kind of a good, like, horror comfort food, because you know <laughs> that the investment level is low, and that you're going to get to see a bunch of different things, and especially with these Amicus movies, you're going to get to see a lot of notable actors, because they only had to pay any of the notable actors two days each. <laughs> so they could they could just get, like, oh, is that Donald Sutherland? Okay, cool. <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, Charlotte Rampling is in this. All right, weird. Yeah. Uh, look good on the poster with all those names. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they're, but rarely are you actually ever surprised. And Amicus is sort of the definition of you get what you get. Uh, you know exactly what you're going to get. But that moment is was very good. <laughs> yeah, and then the, then it comes back to the frame, and I think that's uh, the frame is kind of disappointing. The frame the frame actually feels like a religious educational film. <laughs> <laughs> if, if all of them yeah. instead of you can see a Tales from the Crypt that instead of uh, them all telling stories about how they're awful people who get their comeuppance, if it was just like, I had an abortion, I didn't, be- <laughs> I don't believe in Jesus, <laughs> it's like, I wasn't saved, and then it just ends with, I'm not telling you what's going to happen, I'm telling you why you're here, and then it's like a really bad hell effect, and they go, oh no, we're in hell! <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, the fourth story seems to kind of contradict it, because... Apparently the the main character does isn't dead at the end of it. Yeah, it's, he's kind of in a ever never ending living agony. Yeah, it's very odd. I mean, it certainly is a, a different way to add up the EC uh, comic stories too, because this is a fairly realistic one. It's filmed in a fairly realistic manner. It's not real cartoony. Yeah, yeah. You would you'll see later in the eighties how that completely changes <laughs> using basically the same kind of stories. Yeah, but I mean, this is a fairly low-key grounded versions of these stories and uh, I, I think that's uh, I don't know if I could say part of the fun but it's certainly a different way of doing it than uh, uh, other ways uh, or later ways that w- people would embrace that uh, it was a comic book initially <laughs> true enough Robert but you know what's even truer these words from our sponsors but walk among you See the head of a spectator chopped off and thrown into the audience. See Frankenstein in person from Hollywood. We can't tell you what happens when the lights go out, but you could never see it on television. See the ethereal materialization of Liz Taylor's Cleopatra. Free spirit photo of Liz Taylor to the first 500 boys at the box office. Free ID bracelets to all girls who can stand the horror of blood and gore. Free, you win two-for-one passes to future movies. If you can sit through the entire performance, you'll have nightmares for a week. Only so many tickets can be sold. Don't be left out. See the horror chamber of blood and gore. It's so nice, nice to feel 
So good about a meal. So good about Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's so nice and nice to feel. So good about a meal. So good about Kentucky Fried Chicken. And now Robert and Patrick examine one of the greatest posthumous relationships in history, that between Roger Corman and Edgar Allan Poe. Now, Tales of Terror is... uh, I don't have a lot to say about it, because I think the only thing you really say about Tales of Terror is that Vincent Price was born for Poe. Um, Everything about Vincent Price makes him a great protagonist, antagonist, whatever, Mm -hmm. for for Poe stories. He's in a shitload of them. Throughout uh, the Corman uh, filmography, a lot of them are Poe stories with Vincent Price right in the center. And I don't think anyone's ever been more suited to a type of literature other than, like, maybe Peter Cushing is, like, just the greatest gothic horror protagonist um yeah but it's it's hard to 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 beat the matchup of price and poe i mean even the poe's uh, words sound great coming out of uh, price's mouth it's true it's it's very true and it's and his words aren't don't necessarily sound good coming out of most actors mouths <laughs> um uh so the tales of terror is not really great even the my favorite story in it uh is not a terrific story <laughs> But it is it has so much charm from Vincent Price. Um, yeah. The first story I actively really don't like. It feels like a really boring variation of Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, Fall of the House, House of Usher definitely seems to be the um, the keystone for this one. I mean, it's basically just a, a falling apart mansion and a daughter. A, a visitor comes to uh, to uh, see the decaying occupant of the house and uh things go bad from there <laughs> right um and yeah someone's obsession over a dead loved one leads to ruin right i mean there, there's some sort of spiritual thing going on here maybe uh maybe the it's actually the daughter of uh prices uh a price and uh, the mother died in childbirth and maybe the mother is possessing the daughter because um, of their, her hatred of uh, the daughter, because uh, she basically take her, took her from life, maybe, or maybe it's all in Vincent Price's head. I don't, I don't think it's it's clear on that uh, point. I don't think it really matters because I think that's that's kind of Poe. Poe was never into too too much having a physical antagonist. It's more in the mind and right. fears, being entombed or uh, what happens after death uh, was Poe's thing. And yeah, the, the real the real problem with this story is that the the house itself is not creepy. No, he's covered a, a house with some cobwebs and 
the there's there's not a whole lot of art direction to it. It's not no. filled with curious things. It's not, it doesn't have like dolls or anything like that. It's no, just, I mean, but the house the house in the movie Fall of the House of Usher is pretty creepy. Right. Yeah. Because that mean, that was, was the set for the whole movie. This was clearly just you know a couple rooms. Yeah, they they didn't spend much on this movie. I don't believe. Even for Corman, I think this is a uh, a cheap toss off. I believe it. Um, we didn't mention a framing device because there isn't really one. It's more just that each story is a Poe story and ends with a Poe quote. And in between the stories, there are weird little I quintessential Corman touches, which is uh, what if we what if we filled time but didn't shoot any footage? <laughs> Wouldn't that actually be the cheapest thing? Okay, so here's a photograph of a heart that we can blink on and off. <laughs> with the heart, with a heartbeat sound effect. I mean, and he can get effective stuff out of it. I believe like X, the man with X-ray eyes, opens with a lot of stuff that you could tell was just him futzing around in the editing room um, sure. with with still images. And I think that movie like has a really effective opening in that way. Um, so I mean, but anyway, there's not really a framing device, so we're not really going to talk about it. Um, the uh, the second story is the by far the longest and best story uh, in Tales of Terror. Right. With uh, Peter Lorre as a drunken husband who is uh, shaking his wife down for money just so he can go drinking. Yes. Uh, and then he ends up in a drinking contest with uh, uh, Vincent Price as an expert wine taster. And it, they are... They are they are both so hungry and they are fighting each other for scenery to chew. <laughs> it is, it is there. It, you can't, you, each one overacts the next, each, each cut away to the other. It's like, it, like there's an actual contest going on and it's not a wine tasting contest. <laughs> it is, it is a ham contest and it is the most delightful thing. I mean, as someone who a key thing I love about Vincent Price is how foppish he is. This is the most <laughs> foppish he ever got at any point in his career. Yeah, he, he cannot get more foppish than this. Um, and uh, just the faces he makes and his, as he his tastes little, the wine. Yeah, I mean, even even the costuming works with him and the the little what is the silver cup that he's tasting from? Right. Yeah, it it's is. not even a cup really. It's kind of a uh, just a little scoop or something. It's. It's a delight. It is the the whole story is a very typical Poe kind of story where it is um, the well the funny thing is the actual most of the story isn't even the like most of the story is just build up because yep because otherwise it's just the Peter Laurie show and you want to get as much crazy Vincent Price as you can so there's just a lot of time wasting they're just digging around making faces until it gets to the actual Poe right. thing which is a very typical. Poe thing, which is person gets buried within walls of house, yep. and then a telltale sound gives that gives the murderer away. Right. There's a, there's a little bit of the Casca Amontillado in there. Yeah, a little bit of telltale heart in there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, I, I I think it, it is a, a pretty fun story. I don't think it's a, a great story, but it's very amiable and fun. And uh, I think Laurie and the Price really make that one. Yeah. Work. If 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 that sort of if that sort of camp is your thing, then then that that whole segment makes this movie worth it. Um, not that it's a particularly long movie to begin no. with, so it's not like you get a lot of invest, you investing a ton, but that is definitely what makes it an essential. Um, and then the third story is fun because it's a little, uh, I want to say, Bava-inspired? When did Tales of Terror come out? 
Tales of Terror is 62, so I'm a liar. It is not Bava inspired. <laughs> but it had it is all the fun of Tales of Terror is it's about the mesmerism of someone someone. And basically it's a man who's dying mm-hmm. and he is getting hypnotized to ease his pain, and the hypnotist's request is that he be allowed to hypnotize him during the moment of death to see how long he can prolong it and what that the effects of it are. And it's a good, it's a, the actual post short story it's based on is good, but there's a lot of, um, they had to add elements of like a love affair and stuff like that Mm -hmm. to it to make it an actual story as opposed to he, as opposed to the frequent, uh, structure of post stories, which is like, here's me just detailing beat by beat a weird, (laughs) a weird experiment that someone did. Um, that is creepy. Um, you got a zombie, you got a zombie price in there? You got a zombie price. I, I, that got to be one of the... You got Basil Rathbone as a wicked hypnotist. <laughs> that's that's yeah. pretty fun. Did, by the way, did Vincent Price ever get to play Sherlock Holmes? I don't think so. He's the villain in The Great Mouse Detective, right? I believe he is. But let's... <laughs> There's an easy way to find out. Yeah, that's about to check right now because maybe that was his only chance he got to play Sherlock Holmes. No, he is. I think he is the he is the the detective and the Great Mouse Detective. Oh, that's good. So that was the only Sherlock because he he would also be he has the same thing as Basil Rathbone and Peter Cushing. Where no, he's the villain in that one. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's the uh, Professor Radigan. Okay, that's and that's not the detective. No, that's. That's the uh, that's the Moriarty equivalent. Oh, I see. All right, never mind. Because uh, it's too bad he never got to play Sherlock Holmes. As an aside, just because he's in the same thing as Basil Rathbone, <laughs> <laughs> and Basil Rathbone played Sherlock Holmes like ten thousand times. Yep, he he did get to be a Batman villain though, so that was. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, Peter Cushing never got to be a Batman villain. No, neither did Christopher Lee. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a real shame. Uh, anyway. Tales of Terror is pretty pretty goofy fun. It's it's mm-hmm. good background movie for the Halloween. Well, if you're doing something else and you're not paying too close attention, <laughs> like it's a good October kind of a movie. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's an easy watch. I mean I, I think it's colorful. I think that helps. I I I like the colorful light effect that he does with the lantern in the last one. It's got um, that great uh, again that Roger Corman thing of. It's like, well, we don't want to actually spend money shooting footage or doing effects, but what if I just took a still frame of this and I spun it around? <laughs> and then, like, that's how I transition from one scene to another. Like, that borderline uh, kind of trippy psychedelic yeah. thing, but, like, the cheapest possible version of it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I, I didn't really like that one, I have to tell you. Oh, I mean, no? It, 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 it actively annoyed my wife. That that stuff always cracks me up, is... is <laughs> Is that just like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like the trip. I don't know. It's like a thing. I mean, I think this is before the trip, but anyway. It's... <laughs> but it is Corman. There's no, no penny, penny can't be pinched. Exactly. <laughs> we covered the 70s with the Amicus films, and now the quintessential uh, 80s anthology film, Creepshow. Yep. I, I would... I would delighted to rewatch it and find that it still holds up pretty well i i think it is probably the to- strongest tonal tonally the strongest anthology film ever other than quite yeah 
I, I would I would agree with that. I mean, it's it's all very consistent. I mean, Stephen King wrote all of them, and you can see his comedy voice come out in all of the stories. In yeah, some way or another. There is, and but it's 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 a good mix. It's it's kind of just that is the blueprint. If you ever make an anthology horror film now, you are kind of just looking at Creepshow. Um, mm-hmm. You're gonna want it to be arch and comic booky. <laughs> Um, it, what's funny is uh, last time I watched Night of the Living Dead, I realized that actually George Romero kind of does that in Night of the Living Dead. Is there's a lot yeah. of like crazy Dutch angles and and key lighting and stuff like that. That's just like uh, <laughs> really at uh, really expressionist and and then Creepshow is just he draws like there's just like squiggles on the actual frame itself. <laughs> like there's just like animation. Yeah. If you, if you didn't know it was inspired by a comic book, you'd know it was inspired by a comic book yeah. and you watch it. Yeah. Even if you, yeah. Even if you've never heard of EC comics, you're like, Oh, it's weird. It's like a comic book movie. Um, <laughs> it's got a great framing device. Uh, that is this, that is again, getting into the sort of the nostalgia. It's, it's one of the most nostalgic anthology horror films of all time. Oh, yeah. It I is because it is the framing device is these are the these are the comic books that our parents didn't want us to read because they <laughs> this I mean they, they EC comics were the comic books that caused the great moral panic in the 50s yeah. and almost like killed the comic book industry. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and they even got uh, an EC comic artist to do the uh, comic books in inside the movie. Uh, oh, really? And, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, they're really good. Uh, yeah, I mean the the comic book is, is well illustrated too, based on the Creepshow uh, movie by uh, Bernie Wrightson, who might be the best horror uh, comic book artist ever. But the, they got an actual EC uh, artist to do it in in the film. Yeah, that's that's great, and then you can tell because it I mean it really pays off. <laughs> um, you got the first story, which is basically there's nothing to it other than just setting the tone and just acclimating the audience to what mm-hmm. to expect because. It is just silliness and wackiness and dancing and crazy lighting <laughs> and a really, really great looking zombie from Tom Savini. Yeah. He clearly had seen zombie too. I, I think it was clearly uh, uh, inspired by that. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's definitely an Italian zombie. American, uh, American zombies always look like human beings and Italian zombies always look like monsters. Yeah. It looks like uh, decayed corpses. Right. Yeah. Like the, I feel like Americans, zo- I feel like. There must be something in the atmosphere where in America the dead get up and rise like within a week of dying, and in <laughs> in Italy they get up and rise within like like after six months. <laughs> <laughs> like you always see bone in an Italian zombie, right? Um, or and insects crawling around in them. Exactly, especially the eye socket. Mm-hmm. It, the more the better. Um, <laughs> so that one, so that Father's Day is a fun one. Yeah, uh, uh, I was I was surprised that the the punchline of it seems to be still well remembered. I posted it on Facebook that I'm, I'm not a real big fan of Father's Day, but uh, the apparently it's still very memorable for people of a certain age. So oh yeah, so that, that that's good. And seeing Ed Harris in this type of uh, story is fun. Yeah. Oh, you know, we didn't talk about Trilogy of Terror real quick. Uh, I don't. It's not. It's not essential. The last story is just the the one that makes it memorable at all. But right. I had forgotten it wasn't in this list, and I do want to say I put on Trilogy of Terror at work. Every single human being over the age of forty who saw Trilogy of Terror was on remembered Trilogy of Terror. So I wanted to ask you: Did Trilogy of Terror play on TV all the time? I don't know. I don't remember seeing it, but it must have. I mean, 
certainly uh, back in that age of repeats, it must have aired whenever they needed to fill her. Because everyone remembers Trilogy of Terror. Every person has fond memories of Trilogy of Terror. They're, oh, it's Karen Black. Is this, is this that Trilogy of Terror? What is that? The Trilogy of Terror. Oh, yeah, that with the doll? Like, <laughs> everyone remembers it over the age of 40. Not just, like, horror people, but just, like, just 55-year-old women who, who mm. come in and rent Best Exotic Marigold <laughs> Hotel are like, Trilogy of Terror! <laughs> like, everyone loves that movie, and I, that tickles me pink. Anyway, yeah, I think Dark, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, I think, was the one that was uh, big around uh, my parts. Oh, sure, sure. High school. I'm not I, – in general, I don't like TV movies. They they just don't – I've never really been able to get into any of their rhythms. No, I, you got the commercial break uh, coming up. Although I, I think it works fairly well in uh, Trilogy of Terror, the Zuni Warrior one. I think they, they, they work the break it very naturally there. Yeah. Anyway, that's Trilogy of Terror. It, there are worse things in the world than dedicating a movie to Karen Black. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's not very good. Yeah. Um, the, the first two are very skippable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially the second one. I, I was just bored, and I, I saw that plot twist coming 10 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, they, they, Karen Black is playing two characters? I bet one of those don't exist. <laughs> right. It's Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they those definitely seem like different people. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, they they talk about easy wins, that's an easy loss. You you do that, you come up with that, that never that almost never works. Yeah. So anyway, creep show. Father's Day is it's just sort of setting the tone. I like it because it serves that purpose, but it isn't actually like substantial within itself. No. Um Creep Show's actually also a long movie. Yeah. Because it's it's five stories but it is two hours long as opposed to like Tales from the Crypt with 90 minutes. Yeah. But I, I think it's good. I think, I think one thing that at least the story seemed to get better as it goes along. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So then what is the second story in is the, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. Oh, wow. So they go right into that. Right. So yeah, they don't take long. And I, I think this is a, a, a pretty good one. I don't, King can't act, but I don't think it really matters. I think the the story is very good itself. It's so silly. It is just the silliest <laughs> thing. And just knowing it's Stephen King, just yeah. hamming it up. It's, it, and it just makes it better. Yeah. It is like, oh, thank God he put it, you know, they, they put him in that and yeah. not in a story where the performances mattered. No, the performances don't matter in here. Although I think this is a uh, Stephen King, both, uh, uh, celebrating and poking fun at uh, H.P. Lovecraft because it's very much a variation on the color out of space. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know uh, King has certainly criticized Lovecraft's uh, dialogue, and you could certainly point to that here as certainly he's being deliberately dopey with the dialogue. Oh, okay. But I, I, I think it, it works at the end as a, the weeds take him over and uh, he ends up committing suicide. So it's kind of both uh, something that's poking fun at Lovecraft and celebrating Lovecraft at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it works. It's as silly as it is uh, that it, it does get really creepy when the weeds are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I really I really enjoy this one. I and if it, you, you start, this is not the best, but it's it's pretty good. And it's yeah. A, if if you start here as a, a I mean, as a as a baseline, this is a really high baseline. It's true, it's true. It has the. I mean, all of these all of these have way more style than pretty much, you know, other than Black Sabbath and Quiet They have like way more style than almost yeah. all other. Yeah, and uh, the, the comic book segments. stuff really works. 
it's a good transition. It does feel like you're just thumbing through stuff. And yeah, yeah I mean, the, I, the, I, the I love that they put the ads in there too. Yeah, yeah. The mirroring the structure of watching an anthology horror film to the feeling of being under the covers with the flashlight reading an EC comic, it was a really good strong choice. Um so then the next one is the Leslie Nielsen one. What's that called? <laughs> Something to tide you over. Something to tide you over, of course. <laughs> That's a that's a fun one because wicked Leslie Nielsen is funny. Yeah, he's he's really choose the senior like a pro in that one. Uh, but he, he's great. Yeah, and like indignant, uh, humorless Ted Danson is also <laughs> funny. <laughs> like it's yeah. you, they just like switch the roles, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and I I would say that the the drowning sequence actually works. Yeah, a genuine scare. I mean, that's something really unsettling always. It's, 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 I can't even remember. There's a drowning scene. I thought it was just like you slowly don't see him. No, they, they're the, they're the shot of him underwater. Oh, oh, no, yes. That, yeah, there is that shot, yeah. And yeah, the, and the water still, like brushing into his mouth. That, still the idea that he and, uh, the, the woman drown is, is well there. And I, it, that, for certain people, that really works. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and it's just, and it's got, it's so surreal just the television set in the sand. Like, yeah, <laughs> like as an image, that's a really interesting image. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Leslie Nielsen just watching him from a distance over the monitors. Yeah, yeah, like kind of being removed from it. Yeah, until he's not removed from it. Exactly, and then they come back as again zombies. It's very predictable ending, but it's a it's a fun one. Yeah, and it has a great final line. Yeah, um, which which Leslie Nielsen just kills. Mm-hmm. He knows he knows it's a great final line. <laughs> yeah, the. I I I feel like almost everyone in this movie knows where they are and they're having a fucking great time doing it. Um, the box is the next one, and that is the one that I'm maybe the least a fan of. Um, if only because it's just it it feels weirdly misogynist to me. Yeah, I I can see that. I, although I I I think uh, Adrian Barbeau is clearly having a lot of fun. Oh yeah, no. She's having fun, uh, but it's just it had. I mean, and to be fair, if it's misogynist, that means it is in the spirit of EC Comics. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, it, it's certainly uh, in the spirit of EC Comics, and uh, it, it certainly has has um, a, a wicked sense of humor too. So, I mean, it, it's not t- something to take totally serious. I mean, no, but it is. EC was never with subtle characterization. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's harder for me to uh, enjoy all the way. The way the other ones are, just because of that element of it, um, the joke, or more just because it's so dependent on that element. Like, yeah, she it's has so, to be awful. Yeah, and you just have to fucking hate her and want her to <laughs> die. And it's just, and the the fantasy about killing your nagging wife just in any context that creeps me out. Uh, but that's that's me or whatever. It's still a fun one. The effect is really good. The creature inside the box. Mm-hmm. I think it probably works the best as an actual story. Yeah, I, I say so. I mean, he's, he's given motivation. They, you seem to have more of the background on uh, all of them than any of the other stories. They seem more fleshed out as characters. Yeah, and also you just don't always know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean, especially when you have the other character, uh, Dex, in there. You don't know what's going to come of him and how he's going to tie in. Mm-hmm. It's, At least on first viewing. <laughs> right, right. And it's and I, I think so it's just it's a little it's just the storytelling itself is a little stronger in this one probably than the other ones. Um, yeah. 
And you, you don't really know what's going to happen at the end either. Is the creature going to come out and hunt him down, or is it just going to rampage across the country, or is it going to head north, or what's going to happen? <laughs> it's going to head north. <laughs> it's It becomes the Sasquatch. Um, yeah, it's a fun one. It's it's good. <laughs> it's it's probably the least silly of of all of them, as well. Although the monster is definitely the silliest. That's true. It it, it is a pretty funny monster. It's Savini gave him some really like goofy cartoon eyes. Mm. Very expressive. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely a long way away from the zombie of the Father's Day episode. Yeah. Um, and then the last story in Creepshow is my favorite. Right, it certainly makes the title Creepshow uh, uh, live up to its name. <laughs> I think I think the, I think probably the reason I love Creepshow so much is just because of the strength of the ending. And what is the name of the story? Do you remember? They're creeping up on you. They're creeping up on you is this virtuoso exercise in horror. It is Romero at the top of his game. I don't think there's anything as creepy and scary in any Romero movie. As Certainly not as gross. <laughs> well, so yeah, certainly not as gross as, as this segment. Um, it is... And it is so... And his, like, weird futuristic uh, clean apartment. played by, And the main character is E.G. Marshall, who was the announcer on the CBS Mystery Hour. So mm-hmm. he was – he's like, hello, I'm E.G. Marshall. <laughs> like, he was that guy. So it's even tying back into that uh, lineage of, mm-hmm. of horror radio. Um, so that's a really fun. And the escalation is just perfect. It's just a perfect short horror film. Um, it has the subtext to it. It has social commentary. It has super gross effects. It has a character that you hate and love to see get his comeuppance, <laughs> which justifies the most gruesome comeuppance possible. Yeah, you can, you can't come up with a, a more uh, gruesome ending. I mean, just when the bugs start popping out of the the skin, it's like ooh, <laughs> and his neck especially. Oh, uh, just yeah, and when, churning through that fucking hamburger meat skin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and these are these are clearly real cockroaches too, so they have that thing going for it. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. It's all real cockroaches, which and is a just a them. gross element. It's it's like squirm. It's like even if the movie sucks, the fact that there are so many worms on screen means it's going to have some sort of effectiveness to it. <laughs> um, and in this case, the movie doesn't suck at all. It's amazing. Um. It's. I mean, we did a commentary track for Creep Show a long time ago, and Jim can't watch that the punchline of this story. Well, I don't blame him. Yeah. So, Creep Show's great. It has Tom Atkins as the angry conservative father uh, in the framing story, which I love because that's kind of how I think of Tom Atkins. Is <laughs> just like angry conservative guy. He needs uh, to be drinking. Yeah, he is drinking in that one too. Always drinking. Um, so you know, Creepshow is just Creepshow is the king. Everyone wishes they could be Creepshow, and everything that's come out post Creepshow wants to be Creepshow. Yep. I I mean, other than like maybe Three Extremes is the only is the only uh, anthology horror film that is like not aspiring to that sort of thing. Um, 
But even yeah. even something like ABCs of Death, where there's just like twenty six shorts and there's no producer like actually making sure that all the stories work well together, uh, like even that, you know that when they did that, what they were hoping for was the kind of variety and style of Creep Show and the pacing of a Creep Show. <laughs> So the next one we're going to be talking about is Twilight Zone. I don't have a lot to say about it. I don't. I think it's terrible. It has its moments. I mean, I like uh, Landis's uh, opening segment with Aykroyd and Albert Brooks. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I should say opening segment's great. It's really funny. Um, I think the punchline is lame, but the rest of it is really good. Yeah, they they definitely have good chemistry together, and Midnight Special is a nice catchy song. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a nice it that that's a good choice of a song for that. Um, yeah, and yeah. I like uh, I like Dante just being able to go full Looney Tunes. Yep. Um, I I love all the cartoons all over the place in that segment. Yeah, they must have spent a lot on rights. Well, I, they must have had a lot of money. I mean, the thing about Twilight Zone that mm. actually kills it is that it's so. It it's like it's a mainstream anthology horror, and it and it has no charm because of that. It's yeah. it's like kind of charmless, and also the fact of remaking episodes of The Twilight Zone that are actually, uh, I can't remember is Twilight Zone thirty minute episodes or hour long episodes. I think they're thirty minute episodes. So in some cases, the uh, the remakes are longer than the episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that doesn't help. It's, it, I don't think it especially helps uh, Spielberg's. Oh, Spielberg's episodes. is the worst. It's yeah. every terrible tendency that Spielberg has, and none of his good tendencies are all in his segment. It, I think I. I mean, I haven't seen some latter day Spielberg films. I haven't seen Terminal or whatever. But like, I am fairly confident. <laughs> I'm fairly confident in saying that his segment of Twilight Zone is the worst thing he's ever done. <laughs> It very well could be. I mean, I, I haven't seen Hook, and I haven't seen uh, Always, but it, it's definitely down there with that bunch. Yeah, so that's bad. The I really don't like George Miller's remake of of Terror at Twenty Thousand Feet. I like it, but I don't. I don't think it's as good as the original. I think it suffers in comparison because I, I don't like the character arc as much. And I no. mean, you get Lithgow too in scenery. There's there's certain things I like about that, and there's a nice long take where he's trying to fall asleep that I think is is very good demonstration of what Lithgow brings to the table. But I, I kind of like the original story better with a, a a guy coming home from the mental hospital and thinking he might be breaking down again. Um, after a nervous breakdown and his wife, and and, and that this... and that one was more measured as well. Yeah, like the Miller version just opens so big that yeah. there's really nowhere for it to go, and it, it just becomes tedious. Yeah, it, it, it's big all the way through. Um, so I mean, and you get Lithgow acting like he does. It's it's not going to be uh, small. I mean, it's 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 hard to say to say it, but Shatner's a more subtle actor than Lithgow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, but I, I like Dante segment again, and I, I didn't watch the Landis Vic Morrow segment. Uh, it's very tedious. Just, yeah, and, and really, it, it it doesn't have an ending for obvious reasons. Um, and the character just suffers a lot and has no sense of agency or uh, or anything in there for obvious reasons, and it, it just kind of bad things happen to this character at the end. Yeah, I mean, you can see. 
It might have been cathartic in some ways to just make a racist suffer, but it doesn't make it a fun to watch. Yeah, there, there's there's nothing. It's all it's a one dimensional story at that point, and it it probably if they had uh, actually paid attention to safety, it might, it might have ultimately worked if he had some redemption arc, but it it doesn't. He's just punished. Yeah. So. Uh, that's done. <laughs> I'm done with Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah, I I do I do like uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score to some of these segments. Oh yeah, I do, I do like the choice of getting Burgess Meredith to narrate some of the se- segments, but it, it's certainly missing a Rod Serling, and I I miss the the one that would pan across and Rod Serling would be in the scene. Yeah, I I miss that little narrative motif, and I I don't think these stories really fit together. They seem to be kind of your Twilight Zone greatest hits. Yeah, and it's just... And the whole feeling of Twilight Zone is you dip into this dimension and then you dip out of it. You know? Like, there is a potential for anything to happen. During the first two minutes of a Twilight Zone episode, if you haven't seen it before, you don't know what kind of a Twilight Zone episode it's going to be. Is it going to be horror? Is it going to be, like, a morality sci-fi tale? Is it going to be something else? Like... Like, you don't exactly know what's going to happen. And in this, you know exactly what's going to happen because it's just greatest hits. And you, and it also, staying in the world means that it doesn't have that feeling of isolation um, and that potential for mystery because we've yeah. already established all these other things that are happening. Yeah. Especially I, with I, the Ackroyd at the end cementing that this is all taking place in the same place. Yep. I agree. I, I, I prefer the 80s uh, revival. At least they brought in some science fiction writers and tried to be literary and do some new things. Yeah, I've never seen any of that. I I actually, I'm, I would really like to watch the 80s Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, which I've seen basically none of. Yeah, I mean, I mean the 80s Twilight Zone misses uh, Rod Serling, especially as a connective tissue between the anthology. Uh, but I think that there's some really good episodes in there, some of the better ones of the whole history of Twilight Zone. <laughs> Knock, knock. Who's there? To find out, you'll have to stick around until after the following commercials. No one wanted to talk about it. No one would admit they had seen or heard it. The law told them to quit asking questions or leave town. Maybe folks felt if they didn't talk about the thing, it would go away. But these curious college boys wouldn't stay away from Black Lake. And that was a mistake. The creature from Black Lake is coming to a theater near you, a Jim McCullough production. Ask anyone who was brave enough to see Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th, and they will tell you they were terrified over and over and over and over. The 12th, the 13th, Friday the 13th. We dare you to see this film all over London and in the West End. Your Fright Day will be the day you're brave enough to see Friday the 13th. Certificate X. It's so scary, we dare you to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in horror vision, Hollywood's latest miracle. You'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive, then crash right out of the screen, go into the audience, and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie. We warn you, horror vision is not 3D. The movie monsters become real flesh and blood. Be sure to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party in horror vision and color. Water. You can drink it. You can swim in it. 
And if you're not careful, you can die in it. Piranha. Piranha. The deadliest flesh eaters of all. Their razor teeth can strip a man to bone in seconds. And now they're here in the lakes and rivers of America. Piranha. They'll eat you alive. From New World Pictures, rated R under 17, not admitted without parents. answer to our knock-knock joke was, come on, I want to lay ya. The answer to how does one deal with the complicated expectations and legacy of a certain cult favorite 2007 anthology horror film? Well, that's a bit trickier. The last film we're going to be talking about uh, in depth is Trick or Treat, which was a big, was sort of a big deal when it I didn't, I should say didn't come out. <laughs> um, Trick or Treat got rave review advance notices from certain people, and then Universal just it was Universal, right? I think it was Warner's. Warner. Oh no, yeah, you're right. It is Warner's, and then Warner's just didn't release it. Um, I don't know exactly what the history of it is. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I think there's two things about it that they were worried about. One was going up against Saw. Uh huh. They thought everybody wants Saw now, so this will just get killed in the marketplace. So uh-huh. I, and we don't want to advertise and do all this uh, that for a film that's just going to get killed. And the other one is that it kills a kid in it. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> they, a they, lot they of kid, child that. death. <laughs> like and They don't want to deal with the uh, backlash for that. That's what I was thinking was maybe that was a studio exec looking at this being like, this is – I understand that this thinks it's – that this is playful, but other people might not understand because this is – Especially with uh, uh, what's his name, the first segment, the segment with the pumpkin carving and all that. Yeah, with uh, Dylan Baker. Dylan Baker, especially Dylan Baker's segment is just really, really heavy on black humor. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe not everyone would understand, and especially that being the first one, you could see like audience walkouts and stuff like that happening among mainstream. I mean, I don't know if that would have been the case, but I could imagine. That being something an executive would fear. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that. Although it's rated R, so I, I guess I, I wouldn't. Uh, I would have been a little surprised, but I mean, especially since the tone is kind of goofy for this one. I mean, it's, it's clearly not taking itself too seriously. Yeah. So I think if that if that segment came later in the movie, that would be one thing, mm-hmm. because then you would have already established a goofy tone. And it would just be an escalation. But starting there, it can be <laughs> where he just poisons the kid and is dragging him and then, like, just chopping it. Like, that's – even even me, like, I was even just like, oh, that's a little that's a little off-putting. <laughs> so, like, it just – there's nothing – it doesn't quite capture the feel it's going for. And, again, this is a very nostalgic film that's trying to, like – Yeah. Well, ha- it's definitely, it's definitely engaging in Halloween, uh, trying to celebrate all of the – uh, visual look of it with the orange and black and all of the decorations all over the place. Yeah, this like I mean, comic book version of the world in which Halloween is as big as Christmas, basically. So not too far from the real world. <laughs> I would I would disagree there. I don't think people start celebrating Halloween a month early, a month before October. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it's certainly getting bigger. Oh yeah, yeah. I certainly see more elaborate. Uh, uh, yard decorations. Everywhere. Oh yeah, that's true. They, there seems to be like a yard decoration arms race. Trick or treat is uh, 
interesting in that its structure actually eschews the anthology part of it, mm-hmm. which is that the stories are edited into each other. It's yeah, actually okay. – it's like – it's an anthology film the same way you could almost say Pulp Fiction is an anthology film. Right. Uh, you can you can kind of – and you can kind of get peeks at other stories going on in the background. Itself. Yeah. It's – it's I think I, – I understand why it became a cult favorite because it's definitely a movie that rewards second and third viewings. Yeah. There, there's, there's lots of little things buried in there and uh, I, I think it looks good, um, which in uh, found footage uh, – dominated horror market is something to celebrate in and of that's itself. true that's true i mean it's definitely shot more classically than most horror of the aughts yeah and they certainly spent something on uh, art direction there too and mm-hmm. i think it's, it's, it's pretty good um very good actually i think it's a good looking film and that's nice to have i think ultimately it's just not strong um the ending is good the ending is ripped off from an episode of tales from the dark side oh well, that, that's that's good. I was I was thinking actually of uh, something like the Christmas Carol too. Oh yeah, well there's an episode of Tales from the Dark Side where this grump hates Halloween, uh, and it, this is an episode that was directed by Tom Savini actually. Ah. This grump hates Halloween, and then this monster comes and kills him. It's not a little <laughs> kid dressed as Halloween, but it's like definitely a trick or treat trick, you know? Sure. It's that sort of irony to it, but that last part is good and mostly uninterrupted. Yeah, that, I mean that that they definitely saved the best for the last, and it kind of reminds me of the Zuni Dell segment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the Anna Paquin story is boring. There's really nothing to yeah. that. Yeah, and if you if you start to pick up then the double entendres, it really knocks out the surprise. Uh huh. I mean, they they call her the runt of the litter at one point. So I find the 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 scene the section with the kids is also just kind of off putting. Um, yeah, I, it it. it I don't. I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like they. They. I mean, yeah, they, they deserve some punishment, but it seems they like well beyond what they deserve. Yeah, especially when they show concern uh, that their trick has gone too far. Right. It's. It. It just. It does. The tone feels off on that one, and it's just not a, yeah. that interesting a story ultimately. And, and the kids aren't that great at acting. No. Yeah. It's true. Um. So those two kind of sink yeah. it down, even though I think the. Dylan Baker one and the final story are both pretty strong and consistent. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy the prelude one with Leslie Bibb uh, wanting to take down the. Uh, oh yeah, that, that's right just, that's boring. That's like that's actually the worst part of the movie is opening on that, where it's like right away it's it's twelve oh one. I can't believe we still have these Halloween decorations up. What will my mother say? <laughs> <laughs> you have sheets on posts. What will my mother say? <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, that's that's just nonsense. I like I like the world of this. I think maybe if this was an actual movie, I mean, no one's ever going to put that much money behind it again. <laughs> but uh, if there was a sequel to this, that yeah, spent a little money and uh, uh, tried again with the, with the same basic look, I, I would be interested. And in. did the trilogy of terror thing, where the third, where the last story again was the same. <laughs> character popping up because clearly that's like the mascot that was very popular yep so yeah do something with that and um i mean i, I think it, it could be good I, I think they're talking about a sequel to it so it must oh be yeah a fun video well i mean it has a following but you don't you never know yeah. what what that is going to mean like creep show yeah. three <laughs> creep show three is actually interesting because creep show three is sort of dedicated to 
making all of its stories take place in the same world in the same time the way that uh, Trick or Treat does, um, even though it doesn't cut between them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot to like, but I think it's, I think the problem I had with this is I just think it's overhyped. Yeah. I mean, people wanted to ch- to champion this film because it, uh, uh, it was buried by the corporation and that, and I I, I think they're they're putting more weight on it than it, it can actually support. Um, I think I saw some reviews that said it's better than Halloween, and I thought <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> that's uh, I I uh, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I will say this about Halloween. Uh, Halloween is not as Halloween-y as Trick or Treat. Yeah, Halloween is not that. obsessed with Halloween the way that Trick or Treat is. Um, no, so maybe not. if that's maybe that person just felt like they liked that it was more about the holiday. I don't know. Some people don't like Halloween. There's just like there's weird people who randomly will not like a, a movie that's great. That's fine. <laughs> I think there's a real problem with horror in general, but I think this especially affects anthology horror now, where things have become so post, post, post modern, and you can't do a movie that is the tone of Creepshow without. I mean, well, Creepshow itself was already a stylized reference, but like, if you want to do something that's like the '80s now, you have to just hit in all of these signifiers of '80s. You can't just have a movie that's the same tone <laughs> as the '80s, you know? Yeah. You have to also have like electronic score that people remember all '80s movies having, but most of them did not. <laughs> you know, you have to you have to put in the John Carpenter esque score. You have to put in <laughs> you have to put in the fashion. You have to put in some kind of title screen that looks like an '80s thing. Um, and anthology horror really does not benefit from films from the segments being taken seriously. Generally it doesn't. I mean, obviously there's quiet on there's exceptions, but mm-hmm. generally it's their anthology horror is more about having fun and having fun is actually a really tricky and complicated thing for horror directors to do now. I feel. Yeah. Especially when they're, I mean, I, I think part of it is, is the uh, um, Blair witch and uh, um, saw take themselves so seriously um or at least takes itself seriously by the fans that it's even even paranormal activity is relatively uh uh, uh humorless that it, it's it's going against the grain a little bit in the market um uh, i mean cabin in the woods did fairly well but i mean it, it didn't really blow up like uh some of the real popular uh uh horror films that take themselves more seriously so, cabin, like, cabin in the woods didn't do too well I don't think it made its money back. I don't think. I thought it did okay. I thought it made like about thirty million or so. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I I remember yeah. it being that being a big failure. Well, it, it probably would have helped if they had uh, released it after the Avengers hit. Right, right. Or if they just released it when they were supposed to release it. <laughs> uh, uh, let's, let's see how much it did make. Um. You know, it made sixty six million at the box office. In America or worldwide? Well, it's, well I'll have to go to box office. Oh, that's that. fine. It's not important. But Any, yeah, anyway, I feel like I feel like horror films these days do not have a light tone. Um, and it's no, not, I would agree. I mean, there's like there's this one horror movie, this one anthology film that came out in like two thousand eight or something called Chillerama, and it was just garbage. And there's like trauma anthology things that are just garbage. 
like yeah. things just turn into dirty jokes. Like, oh, it's not serious, therefore it's a bunch of dirty jokes strung together. <laughs> like that the I feel like the tone that came naturally in the seventies and the sixties especially mm-hmm. is now a lot harder to access. Yeah, they they, they I, we got more of a grindhouse uh, aesthetic instead of a fun aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, even 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 horror movies that aren't found footage now just have the worst camera work ever. Yes, <laughs> like it's gar- oh god, it all looks so ugly. I, I this this is not about anthology horror at all. But at any rate, <laughs> at any rate, I think probably the best days of anthology horror are behind it. Maybe I I kind of wonder if this anthology might uh, reinvent itself because it's very convenient for you when you're commuting. To like watch an episode, oh of, yeah, of an anthology. So maybe there there is some future in the the short story format, and I, I think that there's still going to be anthology horror films made. Sure, maybe yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it, it's recent horror anthology films are written by people who are directors and loved anthology horror films, as opposed to written by authors who love short fiction. That could be. I mean, I'd like to. See, I'd love to see another uh, Poe adaptation. It's been yeah. a long time since we had one of them. And... Well, if, if you if, if did you watch the Stuart Gordon Masters of Horror? I did not. We'll see a Black sure. Cat. It's good. It's a good yeah. variation of it. Yeah, and I'd like to see somebody tackle some Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft has barely been touched for uh, um, literature or yeah. adaptation. It is. It is odd that. Lovecraft is such a meme on the internet and had not translated to more Lovecraft films. No, I mean, he, he wrote a ton of short stories, so I mean, there's, there's certainly something you could do, or even in the wake of True Detective, do The King in Yellow. Yeah, I think probably there's just not as much interest in filmmakers now, because now, filmmakers now look at John Carpenter and Wes Craven and George Romero, and they look at them as as their own little institutions and icons, and they want to be that not realizing that a lot of those guys were just kind of journeyman filmmakers moving from one project to the next, didn't write everything. So now you have all these filmmakers who aren't necessarily writers writing all their own material. And then it's, and it's just like, they're not good. <laughs> they're not good writers and they're not listening to good writers. They're not like even George Romero didn't write creep show. Stephen King wrote creep show and you know, uh, uh, Matheson wrote trilogy of terror and block wrote asylum and, yeah, real writers. Yeah, yeah, like people who know the form of a short story, and and I think probably people who are raised on horror films as opposed to horror fiction don't have that ingrained in them, and that might another be a problem. Because yeah, like VHS is semi popular, but it's terrible. <laughs> All those yeah. movies are terrible. Yeah, they're ugly. The stories aren't. Characters are pretty terrible and hateful, and I don't care what happens to any of them. I mean. Go get killed! Killed! You're There's, a horrible person, and it's not like it's an ironic death of any no, sort. No, the it's, humor, the humor is terrible. Like attempts at humor are bad. The ABCs of death movies are unbearable. They're super fucking long, and there's no tonal consistency. And the especially the first one, it felt like every director thought they were going to be the ones who made the notorious gross one that everyone would walk out talking about. Which means it's just a two-hour parade of fucking horrific shit it's just garbage it's terrible and like i think probably it's just short the short form is not good or is not uh is not part of the legacy of these of of these new batch of filmmakers and artists and stuff yeah well i mean it's i i get the feeling that the 
even when you have a good, couple good segments, they're they're not part of a whole. Um, I mean, you, you have the Stephen King holding Creep Show together and Romero holding Creep Show together. It's all a consistent tone. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the best ones, I mean, I think Asylum has Black holding it together. Uh, EC Comics certainly had their consistent tone, so that all holds it together. Some of these that get away from it that are all over the place. And I think it just uh, accentuates the weakness of various stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I hold out hope. There's, I feel like there is now a, a movement of filmmakers who are inspired, especially by like European horror of the '70s and stuff, who are doing more measured, character-driven horror films that aren't just endlessly referencing other horror films and just have no substance to them. I feel like mm-hmm. again, you're getting stuff that feels more like "Let's Scare Jessica to Death" or <laughs> or Possession and stuff like that. Um. And maybe those people can get to. I mean, I don't know. Not that that's what anthology horror requires, but I I have a new optimism about mm-hmm. the future of horror films that I haven't had for a while. And yeah, I'm, I, but I don't know if that optimism extends into anthology <laughs> horror. It, it's hard to say. the The form may not come back, but I, I don't know. You, you always got somebody that has a, sh- a short story, so maybe somebody will figure out a way to package the best of them together in something that makes a consistent whole. Do you think, like, the downfall of literature in general in the culture, like, you could link that up with the downfall of of the anthology horror film? I I, wouldn't surprise me is that people read less, they watch more TV um, nowadays, and uh, that could be part of it, Uh, although I think it's cyclical. I think somebody will do something. I mean, I... I think you could have done a, a King and Yellow adaptation after True Detective and got some synergy going and maybe worked your way up from there, but nobody seemed to have grabbed hold of it. But, I mean, the literature is still there, and, like, everybody reads Poe in high school, so there, there's probably some uh, market for it uh, if they uh, get it, get somebody comes up with a good way to put it together that uh, people go, yeah, I know Poe. I, I can go see this. And... I think probably the problem, that's not a very sexy idea, is like, I'm going to go back to that well that everyone already went to. And also it's not a as marketable marketable an idea as it used to be. Maybe, but I, I think it all depends if you have some sort of vision for yeah. it. If you, do a, if you do a good Poe movie, I would think somebody would show up. <laughs> I mean, if you have a reasonable budget, I mean... I mean, I think part of the, part of it is just just saying I'd like to do this. Somebody with a vision and maybe it'd be a low budget affair. Cause you can get away with that in horror. Uh, say, yeah, I'd like to do do be the literary horror guy. See <laughs> if I can have a market for it. Yeah, I don't know, and maybe it's also just I don't know. You you are you are older than me, but watching these older anthology horror films, there is an element of it which is I find it intriguing that it is old and that it is, and that it is like a little dopey and that it's Mm -hmm. a little, um, campy and that time has made it, uh, has made it a little sillier and a little more fun. And maybe that's just like, I can't get that sort of thing out of, I can get that sort of thing out of bad segments in dead of night. I can get that sort of thing out of bad segments in an amicus movie, but I'm never going to get that out of a segment of a, uh, ABCs of, yeah, or VHS or ABCs of horror because those I'm just already in the aesthetic. 
And maybe like 20 years from now, I'll look back and I'll be yeah. like, oh man, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, I, I think I think there there'll be some turn towards the fun again in horror at some point. So, but I, I think I agree that the tone has to change some to what people are into. Um, I mean, I I don't necessarily want to use Marvel superheroes as a comparison, but they kind of have displaced. Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan is a default superhero model, so maybe somebody will come up and say, "Oh, we can we can make horror films fun again. Not, they don't necessarily have to be scary, be popular." And then maybe the the anthology will come back. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would think somebody would would come up with a with a Stephen King anthology at some point again. Oh, again, yeah. The 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 problem there is. Just well, what 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 what's left? What do you do? Oh, you got you got night shift and skeleton crew to mine for uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could see Stephen King just being one of those people that, like, twenty years from now, all the stories that were already made into anthologies <laughs> will just be remade again. Um, the way that you know, there's a couple versions of the Black Cat and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh. We'll see. I guess we'll just have to wait and see, Robert. <laughs> I guess so. Yes, tune in next Tuesday again for Arch Obler's eerie story of Come to the Bank. Taco La Paz, where you can taste the difference in authentic Mexican food. Delicious tacos packed with high-quality meat, lettuce, and cheese. Tostadas filled with beans, chili, lettuce, and cheddar. Frijoles, beans, red chili, and cheese. Bean burritos accented with chili, onions, cheese. And this week, you can get a Taco La Paz taco for only one penny when you buy a tostada frijoles or bean burrito at the regular price. Taste the difference at the Taco La Paz near you. Ole, come in today.